0: We open on a radar screen with DEFCON
1: 2 written above it. Could be 2 out of 10, could be 2 out of 100. That's amazing, 2 out of
0: 100, really don't worry about it. In fact, we're we're dismantling the military, there's really no no need for it anymore, DEFCON 2. It's all peaceful. Nixon is still the president, and he got the nuclear football sort of handcuffed to his wrist. Just in case some American footballer comes along and tries to nick it and run off. <laughs> you'd almost think they'd make it a not terribly aerodynamic shape, wouldn't you? The nuclear dodecahedron.
1: So you'd run off with the, with the code, and then you'd ring up, It's President Nixon here. <laughs> That's the worst Nixon impression I've ever heard in my entire life. Hello. Welcome. One and all to Shark Liver Oil's final section of its coverage of Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And we're on into the last three chapters. And shit is getting heavy. <laughs> it's a one-way ticket to midnight. Call it Heavy oh, Metal.
0: Man. Have you... Have- are you sure you want to spunk that song out now Instead of waiting <laughs> to the end when it's actually midnight on the clock Have you not just
1: <laughs> Well, you know It might come back later on, I don't know <laughs> No, you can't do it now, Matt You've you've wasted it, you've got to go and find While we're talking, while we're recording You've got to go and find another song that's appropriate to midnight uh, I can find another, don't worry
2: That's
1: why <laughs> that we stick that, that bad boy front and centre today
0: Love it Okay. Well, I imagine, I imagine actually that um, it's easier to find songs about midnight than it is to find songs about three minutes too. So I think you're probably as long as you've got one for the next couple of chunks, you've got a, an embarrassment of riches for the last chapter, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. So we should explain if you're just joining us for this chapter. Um, this is an absurd thing that I've asked Matt to do at the end of each of these chapters is to find an appropriate song for uh for the position on the doomsday clock to midnight because we treat these matters with appropriate gravity and respect yeah
1: and uh 70s pop songs so there we go i have to I have to say uh, full disclosure that that last one um was a suggestion from uh from max uh, oh so i can't take i can't take credit for that one but um you
0: anyway. see it shouldn't surprise me at all should it that our listeners are far more culturally savvy and switched on than either of
1: us well, no.
0: <laughs> well, no. There's nothing more to say <laughs> than that, is there?
1: Shall we get into the... Shall we get into let's, the uh, let's crack camp? into it, shall we? <laughs>
0: so, uh, we start today with, uh, with Chapter 10, and um, we open on a radar screen with DEFCON 2 written above it. Um, mm. And I don't know about you, but are you, are you conscious of this DEFCON system of numbering just exactly how fucked up the world is just at the moment?
1: Yeah, the the lower the Defcon, the the higher the chance of, all oh, like nuclear warfare. I think that's roughly it, isn't it?
0: That is it, isn't it? Uh, but what was weird was when I read this, I I thought it was the other way around because I feel like escalating numbers should equal escalating risk. Hmm. So when it said Defcon two, for a moment I looked at it and I was like, oh, so it's not that serious then, like. <laughs> Defcon two. Uh, I suppose we're keeping an eye on our, on our enemies a, a little bit, but but nothing heavy, nothing heavy, yeah, really.
1: Yeah, and it could be two. Out, it could be two out of ten. Could be two out of a hundred? could, yeah, could be exactly Almost it. world peace is on the way.
0: That's amazing. Two out of a hundred. Really, don't worry about it. In fact, we're, we're dismantling the military. There's really no. There's no need for it anymore. Defcon two. <laughs> it's all peaceful. It's all peaceful. <laughs> um, I looked it up though. Level two apparently means next step to nuclear war. Um. And um, we open here with uh, the president, and we've had this thing where Nixon is still the president uh, of the US, um, but we actually get him here, and it's a great caricature of this big jowly face and his dumb nose and the rest of it, and he's actually got the nuclear football sort of handcuffed to his wrist, which has all of these nuclear codes in for when he actually decides to launch weapons. Mm. Um, Finger on the button. His finger is literally on the button, although the button is uh, shaped more like an American football at this point, Mm. but... But still, but he's he's there, um, and he seems quite tense and paranoid, which is obviously what you want for a man in that position. Um, and he says uh, things are deteriorating politically, and that they're just kind of down there to wait, and uh, and their situation is mirrored uh, by Dryberg and Rorschach, who are hiding in the owl ship underwater, having just run away from the police.
1: I love how with Nixon, the American footballs handcuffed to his wrist. Just in case some American footballer comes along and tries to nick it and run off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the thing is that if that
0: happens, you've lost it already, haven't you? Like there's no way you're getting it back. If somebody whose whole professional skill set is getting something that size, shape, and weight as far away from you as quickly as possible. <laughs> you'd almost think they'd make it a not terribly aerodynamic shape, wouldn't you? Like the <laughs> the nuclear Dodecahedron or the nuclear morning yeah. star or something, so that you couldn't instantly throw it fifty yards. If you are a professional
1: American football player, I've always thought as well. If you've got the codes, um, you've still got to sort of negotiate with the people at the, you know, firing center, whatever it's called, to actually to actually fight to actually fire them yeah. so, so you'd run off with the with the codes. You'd find some way of opening it, and then you'd ring up, you know the HQ for nuclear weapons. And just Hello, go, nuclear politics HQ. <laughs> yeah, I just go, yeah, um, it's President Nixon here. <laughs> that's the worst Nixon impression I've ever heard in my entire life. Never mind all the official stuff that's coming out saying that he just at the codes nicked. This is... Not the person who's just stolen the codes. (laughs) It's President Nixon. Please, can you fire the nuclear warheads? (laughs) Where where do I want
0: them fired? Oh, I don't know. I didn't think that far. Um, Just uh, hang on a minute. Yeah, tell you what. Fire them at um, uh, Bob Dazzles. Used to bully me in high school. Down the road. Just take him out. (laughs) Bernard Veneer. Fire them at Bernard Veneer. Um, so, so yeah, so the nuclear football is kind of is in play, so to speak, um, and we cut from this big global uh, political kind of thing down to Dryberg and Rorschach, who have broken Rorschach out of jail, and Laurie's just disappeared, as we saw in the last chapter, to have a kind of big conversation with John about whether or not John should travel back and save the world. Um, and John has been convinced that he should, but it seems that uh, he's not back yet. Uh, they haven't finished having this conversation yet, and Dryberg and Rorschach are off doing their investigations. Um, and they decide to carry on investigating the possibility that there's been this mask killer going on. And um, they reckon that Adrian Veidt, who had previously been quite dismissive of the idea, might be more into it now that somebody's actually attacked him, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dryberg says Dryberg seems to be, at this point, more bleak than Rorschach, which is sort of... Sort of trying to be more gothic than Dimou Borgia, isn't it? I'm <laughs> not certain that that's possible, but Rorschach's all about carrying on the investigation, and Dryberg's like, oh, it doesn't matter, the world's going to end anyway. Um, and Rorschach says something really interesting about his character, where he says, um, you know, I, I basically that he's always lived this way. Um, you know, it's possible to live on the edge, he says, if you just, you know, hold on by your fingertips and don't look down. And um, I thought this was really interesting, and another great insight into how good a character Rorschach is, because it basically says that in his mind the world is on the edge of apocalypse every moment, and he just kind of mm. lives to try and respond to that. It's amazing. Isn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it's not massively surprising because he has always struck me as one of those sort of doomsday nutters. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. All, yeah, yeah. You know,
0: oh, and actually, he is. I meant to say this. Um, I went back and read it, and you know the guy that we saw in the first few chapters with the um, the, the end is nigh. Sandwich board. Yeah, that's Rorschach. Yeah, and we didn't yeah. we didn't pull that out last time. But I just love the idea of like he's sort of a manic street preacher by day and a manic street brutalizer by night. Um, but yeah. he's very very linked to this street and to this level of kind of ordinary people, even if he has nothing but contempt for them.
1: Mm, yeah. Oh, and and also uh, just just briefly with Rorschach, he goes back to pick up his secondary uniform, doesn't he? Which is sort of a copy of his first one. Yeah um which is cunningly hidden under a floorboard and uh, the detectives have cased the joints <laughs> and uh it's a, it's another victory for the gonna... uh, for the watchman police department you're, you're <laughs> continuing
0: your vendetta against these policemen as as good honest public servants
1: aren't you well, i'm not suggesting they're not good or honest they're just inept <laughs> it's useless <laughs> <laughs> well well Well, we
0: shall see uh, during the course of this section. (laughs) But anyway, as you say, we also have another nice little um, character moment with Rorschach when he goes back to his house and collects his mask and meets his his landlady there. And we last saw his landlady dissing him on the news. Um, And I just wanted to draw out the end of this little, this tiny little arc, which has only happened in like on three pages of the entire thing, where um, it really looks like Rorschach's about to get violent towards her because she's lied about him on the news and, you know, you shouldn't say that about me and so on. And he calls her a whore. And um, and she goes, please don't say that. My kids, they don't know. And you have this amazing moment of actually, like Rorschach seems to experience a human emotion that doesn't have to do with, like, an obsessive pursuit of justice. Because he, we just have this... I love this frame where he looks at the, this woman's kids who are kind of clinging to her and then totally changes what he's going to do. He's clearly about to get violent... And then he looks at the kids and decides not to. I thought that was really interesting. What you see in Rorschach, like even as we approach what appears to be the end of all things, like his, at this point we see his emotions start to trump his like extremely um, absolute sense of of morality. And that I just I really loved that bit. I really did. What did you think?
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, it was. Uh, I thought it was interesting that she. She, apparently, she was a whore as well. Yeah. Because when he said it before, um, he just basically he mentions the marks on her neck, or the love bites on her neck, when he see, sees her ages ago and says she's a whore. And I actually thought that just meant he assumes anyone who has love bites on their neck probably a whore. But it appears he's <laughs> exactly. right because she, she doesn't defend it. actually correct, yeah. Yeah, and it becomes this,
0: you know, this thing where. He, because Rorschach has spent the entire book calling everybody in the world you know, these kind of very extreme derogatory and kind of um, condemnatory words. But when he's actually con- mm. confronted with them, not as rhetoric, but as fact, he seems to be moved into this, he's moved to mercy. Um, and it's just this really little, just a really great image of how well these characters are sketched for me. Uh, that moment, I just, I, I really liked it. And, uh, and after that, we cut to Antarctica, and we're with the smartest man in the world um who who is dressed in a way which you have to say is not um it's not exactly business casual is it
2: <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> he seems to be he seems to be literally dressed as an egyptian king uh which is which is a bit weird um and it's not the only weird that's going on in this scene because um his servants kind of convey him to a room um with 36 one, one big wall of 36 tv screens and he tells them to have all basically all the channels in the world on and to flick through them at 100 second intervals um mm. and it seems to be that by doing this he can kind of identify trends in world culture and, and he starts giving them kind of commercial decisions on that basis Um, Hmm. I found that amazing, rather than like market research or surveying or looking at what's been selling recently or trying to understand it, he just watches all the TV he possibly can and that's turned him into a millionaire.
1: Yeah, I thought it was like an 80s version of Twitter. (laughs) That would be it, wouldn't it?
0: (laughs) Oh my word, That's the 80s equivalent. Of just literally him sitting there staring at his smartphone all day, trying to follow everybody yeah. in the world.
1: Yeah, because I've got I've got TweetDeck, which you can put columns up of different people. Yeah, and I sometimes feel like that that I've got like about six columns all up, and I'm watching like all the information in the world <laughs> just streaming in, and you can't you can't grasp it all at once. But obviously, the smartest man in the world can. He can,
0: he can, because he's quite clever as well. Oh, by the
1: way, it is his king? egyptian king outfit his costume um, is he back in costume from ozymandias i
0: don't know i kind of don't really know which one i wanted to be as well because if it is hmm. then that's a bit weird because he stopped doing that like 15 years ago but if it isn't that means he's got a separate costume just for wandering around his antarctic lair and that is also <laughs> a bit weird
1: <laughs> yeah it certainly looks like his old costume. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, what do you make about this whole this whole kind of the first glimpse into the private life of Adrian Veidt? He's got this weird genetically enhanced cat. He watches TV thirty six screens at a time. He's not bothered about mm. impending nuclear war, like, and he wears this costume. What do you make of it?
1: I like I like his cat because it's um it's the first, it's it's a it's almost like a classic evil villain, <laughs> cat, isn't it? Especially the name. It's like bastards come! <laughs> <laughs> it is time to watch the world in diabolical glee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely amazing and absolutely true. You couldn't do more to telegraph the fact that Vite is about to turn out to be a bad motherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then also, I like that you went straight to the skeletal voice there as well. This really is like 1980s kids' Saturday morning cartoon show. Evil, isn't
1: it? <laughs> I also, as soon as he reaches this stage, immediately his accent becomes a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, you
0: can't do that. Don't sell out to the stereotype. All right. This is this was written by a Brit as well, but you're absolutely right. We we play to that American idea of if I have a posh English accent, then I must be evil. <laughs> Uh, but uh, anyway we go to um, we go after this to uh, we get more gothic John Sparrow and we get some plot and we've had six chapters of following this pirate comic book where it seems to be just like mood window dressing um, but something actually happens because he reaches Davidstown, like the place where he's trying to get to sees a man and a woman out for a ride and he assumes that the town's being captured and so he assumes that the guy has collaborated with the pirates and that the woman is sleeping with the guy which is quite a deductive Mm. leap for a man who's just lived off raw seagull and been chased by sharks and stuff um yeah and decided to kill himself and then found himself still alive but he, he so he he kills them both um and um and we cut between his description of the woman being killed and the streets of new york city um, and we have the newspaper salesman still, and we have some religious salesmen who seem not to be worried about the end of the world at all. Um, mm. And uh, and then Gothic John ties the woman he's just killed to the saddle and, and so they can get back into town and past all the pirate guards, who he assumes are there. Um, mm. And I, at this point, I began to see a little bit more why it was, you know, the function of this comic book. First of all, because something happens. But second of all, because you have this... There's It's been building this, like, relentless sense of um, doom. Um, not necessarily doom and gloom, but just this huge, impending negative fate um, for, like, six chapters. And you start to see this on the streets of New York as well, you know? You have this... Everybody's just talking about how, you know, everybody's going to die. And... Um, I began to think at this point that maybe the the black freighter stuff was justified just because it it helped me to see that ordinary everyday scene in the light of this kind of this impending doom.
1: What did you make of it? yeah i agree i was uh <coughs> the i think the parallels were a bit too um i don't know uh i think it was trying a bit too hard by flicking between um. The what's going on in New York and reading the comic book. Mm. I enjoy that sometimes, but it also makes it a little bit harder to follow each thread when you keep flipping back and forth every single pane. Yeah, Um, but yeah, it was interesting. And it, 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 yeah, you start to see where this very slow and, I don't know, dark story is going now, um, both in terms of the the overall book and this book within a book. And then we have,
0: uh Dan and Rorschach who've had, had a bit of a domestic um previous to this moment um, because they, they kind of disagree about what's going on. Uh Rorschach really is married to the idea that there's a mass killer and that it's just a sort of simple crime that you can solve on the streets and Dryberg has this, what you might call like a slightly more kind of upper middle class approach as befits a rich guy. He's like, you know, he reckons it's all to do with the companies and stuff and um Dryberg loses his temper with Rorschach, but they make friends and go out for some nice, straightforward brutality, which is
1: what Dryberg says. I like like how Rorschach, Um, this is the first time you ever see him almost, like, apologise. And he does that classic almost apology as well. He says, I'm sorry that it's sometimes difficult. Rather than I'm sorry that I'm sometimes difficult. <laughs> yeah. <It's> the situation is <laughs> sometimes difficult, which is a shame. It's
0: amazing, isn't it? It's it's the greatest non-apology apology in the universe. It's like I just I've I've been a dickhead to you, and you've just broken me out of jail, and I haven't said thank you. Uh but I'm sorry if you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, absolute
1: classic. I, I'm but it is good because it is sort of you'd imagine like it's very in character for Rorschach, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's absolutely. not the kind of guy who can say sorry. Yeah, that's true. And 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 but again, you know,
0: this is this is a surprising little kind of moment of softness as well. With you know, so mm. we've had this thing where there's a there's the woman and her kids, and then um, then we have this moment where he apologizes to Dryberg. And I'm not sure I can take the idea of Rorschach becoming kind of cuddly. This seems a bit bit odd to me, but I'll go with it because um, again because it's because it all feels consistent to his character still, um, mm-hmm. other things which are consistent to his character include the fact that they go out and they get back into the same, go round the bars, kick the shit out of people, and get information approach.
1: <laughs> he makes the juice guy entrance he does do you know that do you know that big red thing that crashes through walls <laughs> and I think it's an American advert so the guy the people in the bar go oh no he goes oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um I oh, absolutely love it's that it's Kool-Aid is what it is <laughs> isn't it Kool Aid, yeah, that's right, all. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, oh yeah, and it's
0: a great example, by the way, of a little thing that I love, which is American cultural references, which Brits only get because we've seen references to them in American media that makes it over to the UK. Yeah, it's true. Like so, that so that's yeah. a Family Guy thing. Is oh no, oh yeah. no, oh no, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is. It's exactly that. It's Rorschach as Kool Aid. Um, which, which I really like as an idea. And, um, so, um, so they go, they go looking for information and they kind of do a good cop, bad cop routine, which is the ultimate good cop, bad cop routine, isn't it? If one of you is Dan Dryberg and the other one of you is Rorschach, like imagine being good cop to, to Rorschach's bad cop is just a terrifying idea. You'd have to be basically a saint, wouldn't you? To kind of balance off his violence and, um. And so on. But uh then, then the kind of the tables flip reverse because Dryberg, while he's doing crowd control, finds a guy who he thinks is responsible for killing Hollis Mason, the first night owl, and he's all ready to go crazy and in fact it's Rorschach that has to kind of pull him back from the brink.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's such a nice guy, Dan, even when he's angry, yeah. the best insult he can come out with is Tell me who did it, you slime! <laughs> <laughs> it's that's true, actually, and that's that is
0: directly from like 1940s era comic books, isn't it? You no good, down and dirty, rotten thinking rat! Like all of these swear words that were good enough to get past like the um the the code of conduct for media that existed in the US until the 50s. Um, I just love that stuff that he actually in in a in a comic book where everybody does say like fucking shit and damn. Like he's still, like, kind of, listen, you beast. <laughs> Tell me what I need to do. It's, like
1: it's like those Crime Watch reconstructions. <laughs> <laughs> right, everybody, get that on the flipping ground. <laughs> oh, Crime Watch.
0: Absolutely classic. Sleep well. Eh? Um, uh, so, the other thing we find out while we're in this bar is um, Rorschach finds the guy who paid the guy who attacked Vite. And turns out he works for this company called Pyramid Deliveries and that the guy who gave him the job to pay this assassin has been killed in an accident, and so has the guy who paid the guy to pay him to pay the guy to kill Vite like, has also been <laughs> killed in an accident. <laughs> at, at which point even the most inept of private investigators would start to go, hang on. <laughs> Something's gone wrong here. So, um,
1: <laughs> are you trying to tell me the guy who killed the guy who killed the guy who hired the guy to kill the guy killed the guy? <laughs> he's, he's dead.
0: <laughs> you astonish me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so this kind of this means they they kind of want to redouble their efforts to go to Vite. Um, and then we have then we kind of cut away, we don't go straight to Rorschach and Dan going to Vite. We have um, we have a scene with Jordan Shea, this uh, the guy who wrote the comic, pirate comic, who's gone missing and who we saw before, um, uh, on the island. It turns out, so there, he's on board a ship, which seems to belong to Pyramid Deliveries, and so and they're also the ones who had all of these people, uh killed, and they're the people who owned the island, and people who had them actually disappeared, and rather brilliantly. The claim is that this was all for a movie which seems a bit intense to me like like how dumb do you have to be as a professional creative person if somebody from a movie company comes into you and goes hi yeah hi great good to see you big fan big fan anyway we're writing a movie and we need you to be a part of the creative team "Oh, oh fantastic great yeah thanks yeah, great. Uh, you know, let's, let's talk about terms and pay and so on. Yeah, pay. Yeah, no problem. Uh, uh, it's going to be lots of money, but uh, we're going to have to uh, officially disappear you and make you a missing person. Anyway, sign here. Sorry, what? <laughs> we're going to make you into a missing person as though you never really existed. We're going to take you to a secret island to work on a very special top secret special effect, which is secret for reasons that aren't clear. Ah, uh, all right. Like, who the fuck says yes to that as a pitch? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And the thing is, I suppose it's easier to say yes once everybody else do. So, oh, yeah, there's a massive group of us all going. You know,
0: mm. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, great. That's, it seems a bit implausible to me, but <laughs> I like the presentation of this creative work of art, of creative artists being really stupid and gullible. But um, but <laughs> there it is. Um, And they've been making this thing that uh, Hira, the artist, was sketching before with all the weird sort of tentacles and the weird beaky face and so on. Um, they've actually been making this thing, and uh, and they're on board a ship, finally waiting to get off the island. All very rich and still disappeared. And uh, Shay's putting the moves on. Um, and the ship moves off, and then the ship explodes. So I don't think we're going to get any more out of those characters. Nope. Nope. <laughs> most certainly not. Um. Yeah, so I mean, I would have thought it was quite clear at this point, but this is, you know, this isn't a movie. Even even if the whole disappearing you in order to be a professional creative thing made sense, this is very clearly not a film, you know. Um, but we don't know; we we have no idea what this might be, um, and why all of the people involved in creating it have been blown up. Um, but we leave that there, and we cut to um, Dan and Rorschach in uh, Vite's kind of deserted office where he's been graphing the end of the world, which I, mm. I really like as an idea. Can you graph the end of the world? Like they say multiple crisis lines converging on the mid-1990s, and you're like, I'm not certain that that's... Because it feels to me like if you could put numbers on it, you could manage it a lot better than anybody else seems to be. Do you know what I mean?
1: Mm. I think maybe you can you can see the pattern, but you can't do no real way of affecting it.
0: Oh, poss- Oh, so there's a Doctor Manhattan... Parallel there, you can you can suppose, see what's yeah. going to happen, but you can't do anything about it. But hmm. but then, <laughs> da, 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 da. it turns out that it's all that Pyramid Deliveries, who are behind all of this, are owned by Adrian Veidt. Which son uh, of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And the entire readership of Watchmen went, you, you bastard, I thought you were just incredibly good looking and, and fit and intelligent smart. And, and smart and incredibly well dressed. <laughs> I thought you were everything that's good in the world, but, but it turns out you're, you're an evil, as it turns out, quite obviously, pyramid and pharaoh-obsessed genius. Um, it should have been a bit clearer, shouldn't it, that a company called Pyramid Deliveries were being run by the only character in the novel who names himself after Egyptian monarchs.
1: Mm. Yeah, it all
0: fits together. <laughs> it all it all fits together. Yeah. Um, And so uh, they're in his office and they found this out, but um, he himself is at Karnak, which is this place uh, in the Antarctic, his kind of Antarctic retreat, where we've seen him before with his massive wall of video screens and his questionable... Uh, clothing choices and um he uh we go off there um in this airship which can both maneuver between buildings but also fly tens of thousands of miles across frozen seas to reach antarctica do you buy this oh yeah the the owl ship as kind of you know
1: 747 yeah why not (laughs) yeah why not There are more there are more unbelievable things in this than than the L ship, so I'm willing to give that a pass.
0: That's that is a fair point. That is a very fair point. Although um I'm I I was kind of minded to ask like, can you imagine being in that thing? It doesn't look like there's very many comfortable seats. Imagine being in that for like a whatever it is, twelve hour flight all the way down to the South Pole.
1: I reckon he's got a comfy lounge. Like in the back.
0: Yeah, but which button do you press to get it out, Matt? That's the question. Because you don't want to go stabbing around at buttons. Stab at something shaped like a seat and, and it will turn out that it, like, drops you through the floor or something. <laughs> anyway, um, but before they go, while they're still in New York, Rorschach um, writes the last entry in his journal and drops it off to be posted. And I was looking at the way he kind of writes in this bit. And it's really quite poetic. And I realise that that's how he talks the whole time. Like, mm. he, you know, this all of this, particularly his monologue when he's describing his worldview to Dr. Long a couple of chapters back. But this whole thing, you know, he kind of, he talks about, uh, you know, the end of the world in these incredibly flowery sentences. Do you think his anger might also come from the fact that he kind of always wanted to be an artist? <laughs> <laughs> like this frustrated Arvis vibe I get very, very strongly from Rorschach at this point.
1: I love his final line. I think that's great. Um, I've lived my life free from compromise and step into the shadow without complaint. What a great way to end a journal.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. He, he, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's, he must have lain awake at night thinking of really dramatic last words for his literary kind of heritage. That's fantastic, because if he was really properly a psycho, he'd just write kind of, Bastards, bastards, kill them all, bastards. Full stop. Mm. End. I'm not saying it would have been better that way. I'm just saying I, kind of, I found that more, more realistic to the character. But whatever. Um, But uh, that thing is um, uh, then delivered to the New Frontiersman, and it's intercut. We see that being delivered intercut with more, uh, more Gothic John. And, um, and then we have uh, Dryberg and Rorschach approaching Antarctica, where the Owl ship, which has been underwater for 12 hours and then flown into a freezing environment, freezes and crashes. Um, unfortunately, though they're within 20 miles of Vice Antarctic Base, um, so so they can they can kind of walk it or they can do it on these little scooter things, uh, and and also luckily, um, Rorschach apparently wears uh, wears for the New York November clothes which are appropriate to Antarctica, because um, he doesn't put on anything special. Dan's got a fluffy owl suit to put on. <laughs> Oh, Dan.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Continuing his uh his record as the 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 superhero who tries the hardest and is the lamest. Um and Rorschach Rorschach knows what Cool is. Cool is wearing a dirty Mac and not giving a shit. And he doesn't seem to feel it at all. Like he just, you know, swoops through the snow, these these freezing winds wearing just this sort of overcoat.
1: When I saw Dan's fluffy owl suit my reaction was very much like Bubastus's. A couple of pains later, it was, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was so lame it reduced you to the level of the genetically enhanced beasts. It made me talk like a cat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I just, I just think instead of saying everything's all right, when Vite's like comforts him, you should just gone. I know, Bubastis. I know. He looks like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing if he just Vite at this point turned out to be Mugatu from
0: Zoolander, just like just like kind of Dan Dryberg. Never been hot right now. Never been hot. <laughs> just totally taken into pieces on his fashion sense. I love it. Um, but but that I suppose that would have been a slightly catty way to end the chapter. A eh? A. Eh? Good. I like it. it pity laughter no no never mind and um uh Veid watches them come in and the chapter ends um and then actually we get a bit of a departure from the norm because we've had we've been quite critical of the last three or four chapters like the kind of extra material that you get at the end of them we've kind of read them and gone uh, this is just a bit shit and it's not adding anything to anything i think i think the um the the low watermark of those was um was uh, five pages on writing comics, but then even that was exceeded in its pointless shitness by Dan Dryberg's four-page pay-on <laughs> to owls. <laughs> Ornithology as an art form. I just, no, no, I got some not. feedback
1: on that for you later, actually. <laughs> Have you?
0: Brilliant. Um, but um, this one is actually quite good because we haven't had much Vite so far. Like, he's, he seems to be moving towards the centre of the plot but we don't really know who he is or where he's from, we just know that he's the smartest guy in the world, that he can fend off assassination attempts using vases and that he has cufflinks in his initials um, hmm. none of which actually really adds up to a character um, although they've added up quite fun conversation for us um, but what we get is a load of documents from inside Adrian Veidt's organisation Veidt Corp um, laying out like how they approach business, and you know uh, they've got this whole proposed line of toys involving all of these real former costumed adventurers and stuff, which he actually vetoes, and mm. uh, says that he should create some, create some terrorists and sell them as bad guys using the uh, using the Saturday morning cartoon show, uh, and then you have some um, uh, some stuff about selling a perfume called Nostalgia, and that's the perfume that Laurie had on Mars and then some um some promotional nonsense about the um about the vite method, which will give you and i quote a body beyond your wildest dreams,
2: <laughs>
0: so he's not averse to a little bit of uh manipulative hype, is he Vite? at this point and <laughs> um uh and I liked all of that. I thought it was really good insight into into this character we barely interacted with before,
1: yeah, I thought the fight I thought the vite method was good because um you can imagine him. Doing that, not as sort of a cynical money-making scheme, but as a genuine, um, <laughs> if, if if only more people in the world were like me, the world would be a better place, let's give people the chance to be more like me. And, and turn um, a
0: tidy profit while we're at it, let's not forget. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah,
1: I thought it was, it's a nice little window into his character, these couple of pages.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then, Matt, then you know what's coming. What? It's the clock, and we're at three minutes to midnight. Go! Two minutes to midnight. Sorry, two, two minutes. Mi-
1: two minutes. Yeah. Um, when to become one. That's, that is rubbish. It's that is absolutely <laughs> rubbish. You can't just have a I love song. A, I love how angry you are. <laughs> that is rubbish. <laughs> well, Do a better song. <laughs> I've come to expect better
0: of you, Matt. To be honest, not just a song involving the number in question. That's rubbish. There's loads <laughs> of things involving the number two like um, what I now you see exactly. the only thing I think of is 2 Unlimited which was actually a band so fine yeah okay that's true see that was not as easy as you think I'm not the resident music expert though am I <laughs> and as I've said before you could just be making these up I wouldn't know this, that's actually the first song that you've done where I've gone oh yeah I recognise that oh no it's the I Spice Girls <laughs> and it's the Spice Girls how bad is that I think I'm I'm condemning myself out of my own mouth <laughs>
2: Set your spirit
0: free. How the fuck do you remember the lyrics to this? Is the thing. This came out like a decade and a half ago. <laughs> More <laughs> than that. Anyway, yeah, but chapter great 11. Songs,
1: great songs endure. There. <laughs> great,
0: yeah, yeah. There's, you can't kill the classics, Matt. That's, that's completely <laughs> undeniable. Um, <clears throat> chapter 11, therefore... Opens with a kind of, uh, um, like a whited out page basically with some, a bright splash of color in the middle of it. And then we have a voiceover by Adrian Veidt, um, and explaining why he sees, why he watches all these TV screens at once, slightly more about how that technique kind of works. And then, um, turns out he's in this massive glass dome still in Antarctica, um, covered in snow. And, um, Vite watches uh, Dryberg and Rorschach come in, and kind of speaks really, really condescendingly about them. Actually,
2: mm.
0: says says they don't understand the moral and intellectual regions they're inhabiting. Um, Quite apart from the fact that this shows him to be a smug bastard, a theme to which we will return, because that was what I mostly took away from these ne- these last two chapters. I just fucking hate bite. But what do you think he means by that?
1: Yeah, well, he just believes that they're quite limited, doesn't he? Um, in terms of their ability to see the bigger picture, I- I'd imagine it's something he believes of almost everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very, very easy to believe. Um, uh, and then we're back with Rorschach, who says that ViT is engineering World War Three, and they have this really interesting exchange where you know it says, "How can anyone tell if the smartest man in the world has gone crazy?" And I thought that was really interesting because there you have uh, ViT kind of ViT's comparison to gods and kings, kind of continuing because he, he, the only person who's ever been taught about in these kind of transcendent terms before is Doctor Manhattan. And there's this really interesting thing about a guy who has raised himself to this kind of power and influence, not because of a nuclear accident, but just by well, I mean by we'll find out, by kind of extreme intelligence and business acumen and, and kind of drive. Um I thought it was really interesting to have these kind of ordinary human beings talking about Vite as a um uh as a kind of transcendent human being almost. And we actually get a little moment of that slightly later on when uh, Rorschach and Dryberg enter um, enter Vite or Ozymandias' kind of Antarctic lair, and Dryberg says, "This must be how ordinary people feel around us." And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. This idea of giving costumed adventurers somebody to be a, be scared of, um, and I realised how how rarely you see that in like in superhero drama you know the superheroes experiencing fear except when it's like batman begins and it's because of a drug mm-hmm. i thought yeah. that would be i now realize i'd really love to see more superheroes like grappling with fear um instead of just the kind of you know the, the the one trauma that sets them all off like actually dealing with somebody bigger than them i found this really really fascinating yeah um and then we uh then we move on to uh Vite, who says that uh, he invites his servants to come and have a drink with him, and then we're back in New York City um, with the pirate comic and, and and again, like having dragged along for six chapters and then given us some plot last time. We get more plot. Um, he, uh... But it's, it's some fucking bleak stuff. He goes into a private home which he, he, he considers all these homes to be now owned by pirates and <laughs> kills the people inside and um, And as he kills this woman, she looks into his eyes and says his name. And it's his wife. And his kids have watched him come home from the sea and murder his wife.
1: I thought this at first, but if you look in the last pain as he's running away, I think she's still alive. I think he just beats her up and then runs away. Really? Because she's... There's... Because there are the kids, and then there's a woman holding a mouth. Man, that... I
0: don't understand why you do that. Because that... I, I'm actually pretty mad about that, because that totally short-circuits the whole thing, the whole point of this comic book. You know, this thing is supposed to be this really unflinchingly bleak evocation of a man whose, you know, whose desire to save his family ends up with him killing his family. And... Yeah. But actually, he doesn't. And that's supposed to mirror like the kind of moral depths of what happens later on. That's fucking rubbish. It's really <laughs> annoying. Like I'd literally never read it that way before. But I mean, you know, obviously not happy about the fact that I didn't want somebody to be dead. But at the same time, why the fuck have you made me read all of these chapters if you're not going to give it the the ending that it needs to have, where he ends up committing an unspeakable act? What the mm. fuck's the point?
1: Oh, oh! He's already, he's already killed those other two people, hasn't he?
0: Well, that's true, but it's supposed to be about you, the things you're that are right. dearest to you. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, dramatically, it would have made more sense for him to actually kill her. But yeah, yeah, she didn't. Oh.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I the mean, thing I'm... is,
1: because because it makes such sense, I've I think I've read it a couple of times before, and assumed that he's killed her. Mm. And um I only just I just noticed this time actually she's still <laughs> up and walking around. <laughs>
0: Have we been reading too much zombie fiction is that what's happened?
2: Like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well yeah she's up and moving around but it doesn't mean she's alive. Don't let that <laughs> fool you. No no. She'll be writing terrible zombie songs next.
2: <laughs>
0: that is an appalling in joke by the way. Go listen to our recording of uh, the zombie apocalypse if you want to understand that extremely tenuous <laughs> gag. Anyway, next up we're um we're uh, we're back in antarctica in this big glass dome and vites vites showing that he's a caring sharing employer um by having a drink with his servants what a nice chap you might think mm. and uh vite vite starts talking while they're drinking and keeps talking and keeps talking um and uh Only villains monologue, right? So it was at this point that I knew he was a true bad guy, because only villains give their own backstory. Do you know what I mean? Everybody else is kind of drawn out of them through kind of conversation or in like in you know memory and flashback and so on. Only villains stand there and go. I suppose you're wondering how my brilliance came to exist. Well, let me tell you, and he does. Um, so it turns out he was the gifted kid of rich parents, uh, but gave away all his money to prove that, like his hero, Alexander the Great, he could conquer the world from nothing. Oh, uh, you see. Mm. And um, and and I think that, looking at what he then goes on to talk about, um, I think that's just an extraordinarily vainglorious way of saying that he went on an enormous gap year. Because he yeah. talks. He-
1: Com- complete. Complete with getting massively baked in the desert. I was going to yeah, say. Because of the massive <laughs> bag of hearts.
0: Absolute
1: bender in the desert. And it's like, you
0: you did what? Seriously, you're saying that you became a superhero because you just had the most amazing gap year. Oh, it was just absolutely amazing. I had some hashish. <laughs> but that's what he does. And um, speaking of somebody who had a gap year himself, you know, I'm sympathetic to the, desi- the desire to do that. But, I have to say, I didn't come back and become a monomaniacal genius. So, possibly I didn't visit the right places, I don't know. (laughs) But, but that ball of hash, like, totally changed his whole perspective. If only he'd gone to university and become a social worker as a result. (laughs) But no. Instead, he kills his servants with the wine that he's just served them, and opens the glass house to the snow, leaving... And smelling a rose as he does, yeah. So literally, the only thing he does he doesn't do as an evil genius here is cackle maniacally. That is the only <laughs> thing he doesn't do.
1: I love the way that you work out that his servants have been killed mm-hmm. is through is through this little butterfly which sort of lands on this guy's glass and then lands on his face, and you, he obviously doesn't react. And then you see that they're all dead. Yeah. And I quite like that because it's playing with the fact that you're imagining this all in motion but it's actually a series of stills isn't it so when something stops moving um it's you don't rec- you don't realize it unless something else, unless some other device in the in the graphic novel shows you that. And yeah. that was I thought that was a really clever way of doing it. it really, that's one of the things that really stuck with me as well. When I thought about yeah. reading this again, that was one of the scenes I thought of because it was so unusual. Yeah,
0: yeah, me too. Actually, like it's because the first and the first couple of times, I'm terrible for skim reading. Like I really don't give artists the the respect they deserve in comic books. I kind of skim the words because I'm much more of a reader. Um, but that meant that actually this had even more of an impact on me because it was kind of, I scanned it and then I got a couple of pages on and I was like, hang on, there's something weird about that. And I turned back and read it again. And actually it's really it once or twice before I was like, oh shit, they're dead. They're properly dead. Like, and it was, it was a really good way of planting that kind of unsettling feeling using the visuals even if it wasn't like explicitly brought and kind of hammering you over the head. And I think there's something in this whole book about that, where sometimes it's really, really sledgehammer obvious. And sometimes it's incredibly subtle, but they it all fits. And I think that's one of the great strengths of comic books in general is that you can do that. You can have this like crazy kind of over the top, day-glow nonsense, right next to this kind of extreme narrative subtlety. Really smart stuff. This is one of the things I really loved. And um, uh, then we cut back to New York, um, where the newspaper guy is arguing that it's moral to nuke the other guy first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, uh, we have a conversation with um, Mrs., Mrs. Dr. Long, the psychiatrist who looked after Rorschach. Um, and she's um, she's looking for her husband and hoping that he'll renounce his concern for humanity and become a nice selfish mindless two-dimensional middle class stereotype all over again
2: hmm.
0: and he's not keen um, and he says he, he can't turn from the world um, which is a bit of a bit of kind of a bleak view of compassion isn't it where like you can either be self-centered and happy or compassionate and totally fucked by the world do you think this is a view that kind of comes out of the whole of the
2: book?
1: Uh yeah, yeah, I suppose so. It's um the book plays with uh this idea of how involved you should be and caring about what's going on around you, doesn't it? Yeah. And um it doesn't necessarily uh assume that being, you know, an intense interest in helping other people is necessarily a good thing. Um because you could suggest that what Vite does um is he's, sort of he's sort of the ultimate Utopian guy, isn't he? At you know, the yeah, the end, yeah. always, the, always justifying the means. Yeah, and uh, if you go too far down that road, it can lead to to madness either way. Extreme but,
0: brutality, yeah. Hmm. Um, and but but what's pitched against that is this idea of Doctor Long, who, as he becomes compassionate, becomes less and less empowered. And I thought that was quite an interesting view of kind of what it is to care about other human beings. Um, and it fits really with the fact that like Alan Moore's made the comedian and Rorschach, these two extremely kind of nihilist characters, the the centrepiece of his book. Like, I think clearly the argument he's making here is that really, genuinely, nothing means anything and compassion is weakness. I think that's that's just incredibly sad. He doesn't seem happy about that. Like, I don't think he's saying, yeah, you suckers, all of you people who care for other people, you're all dumbasses, but he's just kind of saying it doesn't matter. Um, And yeah, I, I find that incredibly bleak, but... Anyway, we're um we're with Dryberg and Rorschach in, in Antarctica. Oh, sorry, before we get there, we've got a little bit more of the um of Gothic John Sparrow and he's um he's now decides in his madness, which I have to say makes a sort of a lot less sense to me now when <laughs> when I've discovered that his family is still alive, but he he pedals out to uh to the Black Freighter. Um, this pirate ship that he was scared of the whole time. He kind of kind of embraces it. And uh, and says you know you know like, this is the only thing I'm good for now. Um, and then uh, then Dryberg and Rorschach in Antarctica, <laughs> they they find Vite, and I really love this. There's like there's quite a lot of dialogue-free panels with Rorschach sneaking up on Vite, and Vite hmm. once again pulls out his kind of home furnishing kung fu vibe. <laughs> Notices Rorschach in an extremely shiny, golden serving dish, and um, uh, and takes him out and just says manners. (laughs) (laughs) It's really, really interestingly sort of bourgeois thing to do, you know. (laughs) How dare you? I was at table, (laughs) and um, uh, and and then Dryberg gets his laser pen out. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And it's
1: not just for lecturing, Matt. It's not. It's also a weapon. Is it, though? Or is that just a beam that he's trying to shine in his face? I thought it was a beam. Oh, that's amazing.
0: (laughs) So it is literally, he's like, listen, it's non-lethal, but it will blind you. It will burn a hole in your retinas, and that's as far as I'm willing to go, all right? But Ozymandias is having none of it. And uh, deflects the beam, whether it was meant to kill him or blind him or just singe him a bit or possibly make him look down and be a bit scared. Yeah, um, distract him. Distract him. Yeah, that seems likely to work, doesn't it? With the, this uber mensch. Yeah. And um,
1: he can watch a hundred monitors at once, but a laser pen distracts him.
0: <laughs> just imagine him. I'd love it as well if he was just like, ooh, Shiny. Shiny thing. Oh, shiny. Oh, shit. You've punched me. Oh, God. I've been outwitted by a two pound fifty lecturing tool. Um, (laughs) but he effortlessly takes out both of these dudes who we've seen kind of only really kicking ass throughout this book. Um, just totally effortlessly takes them out and Dryberg puts it to him. I quite like this as a little reverse on the way that the kind of the usual kind of diabolical scheme revelation goes down because usually the way it goes Mm. is the hero fights his way in and subdues the bad guy and then the bad guy goes you caught me and let me tell you how it was all going to work out whereas Mm. in this case dryberg is bleeding from the nose is down on his knees and just goes for fuck's sake you know what you were going to do it's you you know you did all of this you're bringing us to the edge of world war three why um and i liked that it was from a position of defeat rather than victory that the kind of your heroes end up saying this yeah and and then more monologuing oh yes more monologuing um and we get more of uh, more of Veid's backstory um and uh, and he says uh, you know he quickly realized that that criminals aren't really what the problem is you know that crime is a system um and uh have you seen the wire yeah yeah, I love the way. Yeah, made me think of that, and I there was a bit of me that kind of wished that. I mean, I I know what Alan Moore's doing with the story here, and it is great, but I wish there was another comic book addressing the possibility of armed vigilantes in a, an extremely corrupt system, because mm. n- I don't think anybody's really told that story. Like the Batman, the most recent Batman movies kind of went in that direction, but because they had to tell a story about one guy against one guy, they kind mm. of didn't they didn't really dig into that as much as they should have done. And hmm. I would have loved, I'd love to see that a superhero comic book, which deals with the politics, which which might be how you can tell that I am more of a fan of this type of comic, comic book than I am the sort of classic Batman Superman style stories where all they've got to do is punch people and it's all going to be all right. Um, yeah. So the why the comic book, what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, yeah, it could could work. You know, could work. I, it's, it'd be a, it'd be a, a lot of the use of the sort of grey pen because <laughs> it's not the most bright and vibrant place to set a comic.
0: That's true. Downtown Baltimore probably not known for its um its vibrant colours, but mm. um, I don't know I will see. Anyway, and he, and we go through Vite's kind of early career. He talks about meeting Blake, and it turns out that Blake. Probably killed both hooded justice and possibly JFK as well. Turns out he was in Dallas the day JFK was shot, looking after Nixon, and nobody really knows why Nixon was there. Um, mm. I read it anyway as the implication that that uh, the comedian might have killed Kennedy. What did you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what's hinted, isn't it? Yeah. And um, during the these flashbacks, there's a bit where he's in what looks like a um, some kind of. I don't know like a, a casino yeah and uh, there's a gu- and he's, he's sort of you know sorting things out there mm. and what is going on with the artwork on the wall in that pain? oh yeah it's a lot of like <laughs> weird lady devils with pitchforks stabbing people
0: St- yeah <laughs> what's that's that completely up about? undeniable that's like feminist <laughs> Hieronymus Bosch that's amazing <laughs> No, I, I've literally no idea. But I have to say, once again, I'm loving the fact that you read these panels so closely. Because I, I was just like, yeah, I guess he's fighting a guy in a bow tie. Moving on. And you're all like, hang <laughs> on, hang on, hang on. It's just devils with their boobs out. And pitchforks. and What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, also during this, um, during this flashback, we, we cut to Rorschach. Who I just begin to love in this scene. Because he simply does not give up like like Ozymandias is back to monologuing and we as an audience really want him to carry on monologuing because we sense we're getting the explanation for the entire story here Rorschach doesn't give a shit he's going to kill him come what may and picks up a fork and goes for him <laughs> but, uh, but as we know using household utensils as weapons of violence he's on Veidt's home turf no chance absolutely no chance Veidt chucks him punches him out and carries on monologuing because damn it there's story to be unfolded. And, um, uh, and, uh, so, um, and then he says, um, he wanted to deny the comedian and his kind, their last black laugh at the earth's expense. And that's why he's kind of done what he's done, which doesn't really make sense at this point because, you know, he seems to have brought on world war three and that's exactly what the comedian says, he was gonna do right. Yeah. So this is this is I uh, first time I read this, I found this really really weird. I was like, yeah, but you're making that more likely, not less, right? Um. Anyway, we get more. They're wandering around this massive palace, and he it becomes clear he's incredibly self-important. You know, describes himself as becoming like kingly Ramesses, and um, and you know, I'm kind of I am hating him for all of this smugness, right? So he says, uh, we, he kind of goes through his whole plan and it's intercut with the descent of like the people of New York City into kind of further violence. And um, he says he was behind the art, the island with the artists on it, as we knew, um, but that it was part of a plan to end war using genetics and teleportation. And it's like, hmm. right, okay, that sounds plausible. And then And then we finally, we come to it. We find out what the fuck has been going on. Um, And it turns out that his whole plan was to unite the Earth against an apparent alien attack. So this thing that they're making on this island, this genetically modified organism, which is is supposed to be a special effect for a movie, is real. Um, And the idea is to teleport this thing to New York City, where the trauma of teleportation would cause it to kill half of New York City with a psychic shockwave. Because inside it, there's a brain of this psychically sensitive individual
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um and while this is extremely important to the plot it is skipped past in about four panels and i have to say i think that was quite wise because otherwise i'd be like sorry a psychic what as you so this is a world which is kind of ruthlessly scientifically accurate except you know there are
1: psychics Mm. what Uh,
0: did you did you buy this at all yeah, well
1: yeah, why not? I th- I, th- I thought it was quite I thought it was quite interesting. Um it's obviously it's a big jump and yeah, you have to accept that there's some genuine psychic power out there somewhere. Yeah. But um yeah, in a world where a um big blue man can appear um after being vaporized or effectively vaporized um yeah, yeah, why not? All right.
0: Okay.
1: Cool. I I found that a little bit more
0: a little bit more hard to kind of to accept, but um, I'm like I'm not much of an aficionado of that kind of that kind of fiction. So it always when somebody kind of goes and then psychic powers, unless it's really been mm. a part of the plot from the beginning, like um, Stephen King's Carrie, like the story is about a girl with telekinetic powers. So I'm like, all right, that's the story you're telling me. But this has felt yeah. to me like a story about politics and kind of the human condition and failures of humanity and so on. And then mm. psychics. And it's
1: like, yeah, what? I, I, I agree. But my um, sort of psychics moment like that came with Manhattan when I thought oh, oh, so this isn't going to be a particularly realistic story. Yeah, that's but, true. And, I, and I think sometimes just the fact that sort of a, a supernatural event wrapped up in science doesn't make it any less supernatural.
0: Oh, well, uh, yeah, I think that's true, actually. And I think that's worth I think that is kind of an honourable tradition of storytelling. So I suppose I'm willing to go with it. But for me, the Dr. Manhattan becoming a superhero because of a nuclear accident was more like a kind of... It's so unoriginal, so I'm willing to go with it. You know, mm. it's happened so many times that I'm just like, uh, okay, great, you're telling a story in which... You know, a standard superhero story. But standard superhero stories don't usually contain psychics. Was my mm. was my thing. You know, it's just like, I, you know, I can't quite believe you're building a plot around this thing which we haven't heard anything about before. So it felt a bit... Kind of Deus Ex Machina to me. Hmm. Um but but then maybe that's what Alan Moore wants since he has riffed on the idea of Deus Ex Machina sort of earlier on, so fair enough. Um and uh and anyway, so this this diabolical plan, you know, which it seems is to save the world by sacrificing New York City. Um and um and he does he does for saying that I've been ripping on it for monologuing like a proper classic uh villain the whole time, turns out he is no fool. And and he has this kind of this quite devastating panel actually, where he says, um, "Dryberg says so." I can't believe you you planned all of this. When when is this supposed to happen? And Veit just goes, "It happened thirty five minutes ago." Do you think I'm an idiot? And it's like, oh, you like you really you know. And at that point, you understand why you've been cutting in between the street and Veit. And at that point, you understand why. You've had the black freighter stuff all the way through, and at that point, it all kind of falls on this panel, um, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Where there is like, you know, there is a clock, and it's actually a minute to midnight, and and you just see the total shock on Dryberg's face. Um, And I thought this was a fantastic moment.
1: Yeah, I like it, but I've got a question. Oh yeah, if it happened thirty five minutes ago, yeah, shouldn't shouldn't that clock read thirty four minutes past midnight? Yes, because. (laughs) Because when we cut to the next chapter with everybody dead, they all died at midnight. No,
0: no, 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 no. In the next chapter, Manhattan arrives there two minutes before midnight or a minute before midnight and so, and it's already happened.
1: Oh, yeah, I suppose. Oh, yeah, because I assumed that the clock would stop, but I don't know why, because I suppose it, the it because, was a psychic thing, wasn't it? Because yeah. all the windows have been blown out and all that, and it just looks like the clock could stop as well yeah. <laughs> but no maybe it get carried well, on.
0: Well no I mean the stopping clock is the great cliche of of kind of nuclear testing and actually we riffed on this before earlier in like the third chapter I think where you've got yeah. um John Osterman before he was Dr Manhattan doing his flashback and there is a frozen clock frozen watch um mm. as a result of a nuclear blast so yeah I mean I think it's kind of taking liberties with that with that whole kind of norm um, and I, yeah, and the question of why a psychic shockwave would break all the windows, as if windows have minds, I think is definitely worth entertaining. But before we get to it, we have this really weird puff piece about Adrian Veidt written by Doug Roth, who's this 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 reporter who clearly works for Veidt, works for a newspaper that's owned by Veidt. Um and it's it's absolutely insane. Um, this this whole it's just the most sycophantic. Interview kind of profile, I think you've ever read in your entire life. Um, and these days there's a good amount of competition for that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but um, but there is actually um Vite himself riffs on the idea of being the smartest man in the world where he says, as long as you call me the best groomed man in the world, ha 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 ha, what a cock. <laughs> and he ends up saying i just wish i am the smartest guy in the world i just wish it wasn't this world which is like buy get yourself some better pr mate don't put that quote in an article nobody likes a man who describes himself as being better than everybody and kind of lamenting how bad everybody else is like just such a knob <laughs> but but to lift our spirits it's one minute to midnight which means there's a song oh,
1: just just before we end that <sighs> i just i think we should mention the um the moment of the explosion or teleportation or whatever. Because I think that's told quite well at the very end of that chapter where you see it's sort of split second by split second as you look at all these characters from the street of New York which have yeah. come to to know to various levels. So you've got the two detectives, you've got the lesbian couple, you've yeah. got the uh, the psychiatrist and his wife, uh, these two blokes who've just come out of a garage, I think. um, this guy who sells watches, and then of course the, the newspaper vendor and his little comic book reading mate. Yeah, and at the moment where it exp- where the sort of the explosion happens, you see these like five or six panes where the newspaper salesman sort of grabs the grabs the kid to sort of protect him and dives on top of him. Is it is it all explodes? I just thought it was a great, really dramatic moment.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I thought it was incredibly well staged, and. And really heartbreaking, and did you notice that the the very last thing before they 're all vaporized the you know the the newspaper guy grabbing the kid to try and protect him is exactly the same shape as the hole in the snow right at the start of the chapter mm. um, so again i i thought that was I thought that was really, really fantastic. I also noticed by the way that despite your your campaign of dissing against the the good men of the n y p d these guys despite having been taken off the job still feel compelled to maintain law and order and justice and get out of the car and go and help i mean it turns out to be pointless but you've got to give them points for uh, for professionalism even after being sacked eh <laughs> no
1: Come on! <laughs> no, and I'll tell, and I'll tell you why. Because the, the, these aren't a couple of beat cops, which you know their general job is to break up fights and stuff. These guys are supposed to be detectives. They're supposed to be the finest minds that the police department can put forward <laughs> to break the cases of serial killers. And the best we can say about it, the best we can say about them <laughs> is that they stopped in the middle of a street to break up a fight between two lesbian women.
0: Well, yeah, but it was a fight going on, and they, you know, serve and protect. That's the fundamental yeah. vow, isn't it? Not serve yeah. and protect, and also be incredibly impressive.
1: Yeah, They're, they have they have reached square one of basic police work. So I'll <laughs> we'll give them that.
0: <laughs> You're a harsh taskmaster, Matt. But and and anyway, uh, one minute to midnight. What's the song?
1: One love. No. <laughs> one night. <laughs> one need. In
0: the night, <laughs> one not the same. You know what? That's it. But are you two. Uh, yeah, I'm going to let you get away with that because because you know you two at the end of the world. Um, uh, there yeah. There you, you go. But yeah. again, you have just chosen a song with the number in it instead of having any kind of time component whatsoever. But but that's that's all right. That's okay. That's
1: okay. <laughs> Um, you do know that that that's what I've been doing for all of these. Yeah, but some of them I felt like there was a kind of you know. floor to the floor is nothing to do with
0: like. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I t- actually, I was, I was kind of, I, I, Whenever I've thought about two minutes to midnight, I was expecting you to give it two tickets to paradise because at least that's <laughs> number noun and the word two. That's like three out of four. <laughs> no, you went. You but went no, for the spice. No,
1: no essential time reference, there, though. No essential
0: time reference. No, no. <laughs> we really do need to do a Spotify playlist of these, by the way. It'd be the weirdest <laughs> playlist in the world, especially to read along to Watchmen with. Anyway, chapter twelve. It's the last chapter, and it opens with a clock covered in blood, and mm. uh, several pages of extreme devastation. And like you say. This psychic shockwave which comes from a creature who is increasingly clear looks exactly like a squid, um,
1: with, an afro. squid a, with an afro a squid with
0: an afro <laughs> like what After, psychic afro squid is coming for you and your city <laughs> um, and he's blown out all the windows for reasons that nobody understands um <laughs> So, I mean, can we,
1: can we call this chapter "Psychic Afro Squid is coming for you in your city"? <laughs> yeah,
0: I think we have to, isn't it? We really have to. <laughs> um, but there is Psychic Afro Squid with its single eye, which, to be honest with you, just looks a little bit sort of nonplussed. You look at you look mm. at its eye on the um, on the on the panel with the title on "A Stronger, Loving World." The whole mm. effect of that face is to just be like, kind of, what the fuck just happened there? <laughs>
1: Whoa, what did I drink last yeah, night? This is, oh. this is the worst hangover in the history of the universe <laughs> I suppose it can't have much emotion because it's supposed to be dead, isn't it?
0: I suppose that's true but that's what I mean is that it does have a surprisingly large amount of emotion for something that is supposed to have n- actually never been alive or been alive only very, very briefly It looks, It looks like it's experienced just like the horror of waking up after a four-day bender Just... <laughs> An epic sort of thousand-pound hangover, sort of thing, is how I interpret the look on that thing's face. But um, you know, I'm making I'm making very light, obviously, of some scenes which are absolutely horrifying. And we see all of our all of our guys kind of wrecked, all of the people that we followed and kind of sinned their lives, and um, uh, they're just dead in the streets. Um, mm. And into the middle of this, Doctor Manhattan and Laurie appear. Um, having apparently taken an entire chapter to teleport from Mars. Um, And I would call that a plot hole, but actually it is kind of explained. It's, you know, this, the same reason that John couldn't really see the future. He says there's all sorts of tachyons kind of echoing around and and that static interference has meant that he can no longer see the future. (laughs) As a result of which, he continues his form as just about the most sympathetic character in the entire book, because surrounded by unprecedented devastation, he just talks about how he's excited to be in the dark about how this happened. Mm. He's just like, I had no idea what it was like not to know anymore. Like, never mind the dead thermodynamic miracles surrounding you there, Dr. Manhattan. Didn't hold on to that epiphany for very long, did you? Mm. And then, uh, we move on. We go back to, um, we go back to Antarctica um, more of a recap and Rorschach as you can imagine is absolutely furious like he's almost animal like most of the noises he's making are kind of growls mm. keeps telling Vite to send away boobastis yeah. boobastis <laughs> uh, so that he can get in and just kind of have a fight um, and then at the bottom of the page there's this thing where they're talking about for his plan to work he would have had to be able to catch a bullet you know that's that's how that was his plan for surviving the assassination attempt, right?
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and Dryberg says, um, "Come on, that's completely. You couldn't really do that." And then there's this, there's the picture. Which, if you <laughs> wanted to send something into space to illustrate the meaning of the word smug, it would be that <laughs> picture. And is it weird that it's only at this point that I come to truly hate Vite? Until this point, I've just been sort of like, you're a bit of a dick, and then he kills people, and I'm like, oh, that's dramatic. But here, I'm just like, you son of a bitch! You son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> is that weird? Do you think? Should I be worried about my moral soul?
1: That is the smuggest face in the world. <laughs> he, he has become the smuggest man in the world there yeah, at that very moment.
0: The smuggest man in the world. <laughs> um, other other potential titles for this uh, for this cast <laughs> the smuggest man in the world yeah so there's uh, there's more monologuing and um, and then there's this really weird moment which I only caught this time through so we saw him in the last chapter kill his kill his servants by opening the top of this glass dome
2: yeah
0: and um, and then but in here he claims that they killed themselves which is really weird because they didn't he killed them. So he says, yeah, he says, um, my servant's deaths from exposure after drinking, after drunkenly opening my vivarium provides its silent capstone.
2: Hmm. You know, the
0: pyramid of people that he killed. And it's like, so I think this is this is supposed to take him to a place of being a proper psychopath. You know, totally justifying his violent acts as things that people brought upon themselves, Hmm. Um, which is an interesting departure, because otherwise throughout this, he seems to be very seized. And for the rest of the book, he seems to be absolutely convinced that he's done the morally right thing in killing all of these people in New York because it's going to prevent a nuclear war. What did you make of that?
1: Yeah, I didn't notice that uh, when I read it and yeah, it's very straight. It's like the um, the woman in the uh in the black freighter book surviving it seems a it it seems a real off note it seems straight i mean it it seems strange in the context of the rest of the story
0: yeah yeah to the point where i would almost apart from those two notes i would almost describe this whole thing as like a perfect realization of its concept Mm. you know it started from one and built an entire world and told precisely the story it wants to tell in it with characters who are really perfect evocations of what they're supposed to be evocations of. and then there's these two really tiny notes where i'm like wait what <laughs> and it seems to t- sort of totally derail the theme but um mm. i know I, I still think it's fantastic but I, honestly they, those two things between them they really take it from a 10 out of 10 to a 9 for me the whole book mm. um mm. they just they're a bit out of shape really out of place um anyway so um uh, then John Laurie arrive in um, in Antarctica, and if you thought Rorschach was wearing the wrong kind of clothes, so it's <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> that is not appropriate dress for Antarctic exploration. It's not.
0: It? It's not. She's it's a woman keeny <laughs> and uh, with, with yellow chiffon over the top, and it is just not right. It's you just don't want to be wearing that at this point um and and then then manhattan manhattan continues his his uh self-absorbed brilliant streak he has a bit of an excuse but he does still walk in teleport inside leaving Laurie in antarctica all by herself Mm. uh very again sympathetic and uh and then uh then veit has a plan to take out dr manhattan
1: i love manhattan's arrival shot from between his legs. Oh, you know? oh yeah.
0: Oh yeah. No <laughs> doubt in that. <laughs> <laughs> big blue, as though to, as though to remind him that he is the big blue swinging dick himself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway. I, I do, re, I do really like how that bit relieves though. Yeah. Is almost like the, um, yeah, his world's beginning to blur because of all these tachyons knocking about. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, two at least two panes of him has been double paced in the book yeah so he's been almost paced in the wrong place yeah um and i I really like that it's it's using the the medium to play with this idea of reality as well
0: yeah 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 very true and and i've read lots of lots of comic stuff that is much more deconstructive of the form than this but i i like that they they stay at this level of kind of like it all serves the story it all serves the character and the ideas Mm. um Rather than being kind of for its own sake, so yeah, you're right. That's fantastic. Um, And then Vite takes out Manhattan using basically the same technique. It would seem as the one that created Manhattan, Um, Mm. and you're left with that for a page. Now, like we've seen, Manhattan put himself back together, and of course, over the page he turns out to. But for that moment, I was like, kind of, fuck, he's gone.
1: (laughs) Like, all right, (laughs) so much. poor Poor Bubastis as well.
0: Oh, Bubastis.
1: Look at his little face when uh, when the at the moment of explosion. Yeah, just go, like, oh shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what it reminded me of. It was um it's um ThunderCats, isn't it? Snarf. Yeah. It's the little weaselly one that runs around and just kind of does their bidding for them. <laughs> yeah. Um anyway, so so Vites Vite kind of smugly says, uh, you know, I didn't know that whether that would work. And then, uh, then Lorry, who's got inside, tries to shoot him, and Vike demonstrates that he can indeed catch a bullet, um, <laughs> which would be impressive. But now I hate him so much that I'm just like, "Oh, you son of a bitch! You can actually do that as well, you fucking bastard!" <laughs> um, but, um, but then, and then we have this this fantastic moment where um, Manhattan puts himself back together at like 95 times the size, breaks in through the window, and just. <laughs> And I love the only comment in the frame where uh, Manhattan's hand comes through the ceiling is just Dryberg going, Ah!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love this Dryberg. <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: It's such a Dryberg thing. Everybody else, Rorschach is kind of like existentially stoic against the whole thing. What will be, will be, and I'll deal with it. And and Laurie's just kind of diving out of the way and so is, so is Vite. But Dryberg's like, What the fuck? <laughs> oh no and, th- and this is why this is why I like Dryberg though because everybody else is too busy being a comic character at that point Dryberg's the only guy despite the fact that he's dressed up as an owl who reacts like a human being it's just what the shivering what ah! <laughs> I really like that but then um then Vike uh Vike kind of crawls away on the floor from this being who is actually basically God um but then then you know, kind of turns the moral tables on him because he turns on the TV and it turns out that his plans worked and that as a result of this thing killing half of New York City, there are going to be peace talks between Russia and the US about, you know, reducing arms and coming back from the brink of war and so on and so on. Um, mm. um, and uh, and then then we have this this really interesting split where instantly... Dryberg and Doctor Manhattan who are like, oh yeah, okay, now he's got away with it. Like, there's nothing we can do. If we expose what he's done, many, many more people will die. Obviously, Rorschach's not having any of it, and uh, and neither's Laurie. Um, and then uh, Vite just leaves to go and meditate. <laughs> he's, he's just killed half of a city, and he's like, well, that hasn't upset my spiritual equilibrium at all. I'm gonna go and commune
1: with the universe. Is that not why he does it though? Because he's still. Towards the end, it, it, you see he is still sort of not sure whether he did the right thing. And it seems like it does weigh heavily on him.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that is a very interesting question, I think. Do you think, because I, I personally, like, I mean, I, I, I may not understand the kind of, um, the kind of particular meditation that he's following here. But I would have thought that it was quite difficult to do if you felt that kind of weight of guilt. You know, serenity would not attend you if you believed that you just killed several million people. Mm. Uh, maybe, yeah, that's why he's going. He's going there to, to look for it. But um, and then we get this really, you know, it's really weird breakup where where Vite leaves to meditate and Dan and, and Laurie go and have sex. And and I think it's a credit to Alan Moore's story writing power that this comes off not as crushingly inappropriate, <laughs> but as, as kind of quite poignant. But wh- what did you make of this? Were you like, what the hell are you doing having sex here and now?
1: Well, as good a time as any, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) You would, wouldn't you, as
0: well? You'd go through that whole experience and then you'd be like, hey, baby.
1: (laughs) About that time, isn't (laughs) it? Four Uh, million people
0: (laughs) just died, but we're alive. Giggity, giggity, goo.
1: (laughs) He's brought his Barry White. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, yeah, it it was all right. I mean, the problem is I haven't been greatly taken with the Dan and Laurie romance anyway so yeah uh, it didn't it didn't feel like a shockingly inappropriate it it did feel a little strange i suppose considering a few pains ago it was building to this massive violent clash of different personalities and a big fight breaking out but um yeah no I, i'd say i'd say i felt relatively indifferent towards it, it was okay and then i moved on to the the next bit
0: yeah yeah that's true um but then we then we have this scene which for me is is the point one of the one of the really kind of tragic moments of the whole book i i think that yeah the 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 thing between dan and laurie is just like eh, like i don't i don't get that as a as a kind of as a big thematic moment but the next bit is amazing where you have um rorschach outside in the snow and he's about to leave and manhattan goes out there and says i can't let you leave you know you're gonna you're gonna bring down this piece mm.
1: I, I like how i like how rorschach's mask um is the same as the silhouette at the end of uh, at the start of the this bit is the same as the end of the silhouette at the end of the last bit. Oh yeah, so quite, yeah. Kind of so feel. his
0: face is just absolutely stuck in this this one expression, right? Um, mm. Oh and wow, because in the, the next page he takes it off, and I think the the ink block is following the tracks of his tears. That's mm. I've only just realised that, but if that's true, that's amazing. I think that's fantastic. Mm. Um, because this whole thing is, I just find this like indescribably moving is this character who's like totally sold out to his own moral viewpoint and is is not compromised for a moment. And the mask has kind of been a symbol of that. But then when it comes where he embraces his death, he turns to him and says, what are you waiting for? Do it. You're going to kill me and there's nothing I can do. Do it. But he takes off his mask to say that. And this mask has been the whole definition of his character. You know, he says, I'm only Rorschach when the mask is on, you know, um, and he takes it off in order to die what do you make of that
1: yeah it's 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 also um necessary from just the artistic point of view because you want to see his face at that moment don't you yeah 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 absolutely um, so they have to find a way of getting his his mask off yeah and uh, yeah it didn't i suppose it could hold a greater significance about his acceptance that raw sharks are over now yeah so he may as well die the way he was born, which is as this guy used to be. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. I, that's true, I think. I think there's something really... The the death moment, this particular death moment, is, is played really well for all of the kind of weight that it can have. Because death has kind of hung over this whole book as a threat, but there's actually there's certain things that you can explore in characters at the moment of death which you can't do at any other time. Hmm. And, you know, the idea of what a character does when they face their inevitable death is... He's, I, I just found this incredibly moving. Actually, it oh, was amazing.
1: Yeah, it's also a shock that it's Manhattan who kills him. You think if anyone's, if it, yeah. either Dryberg or um, Rojas are going to get killed in this scene, you would think it would be va- a yeah. fight that did it? Yeah,
0: yeah, but no, it's it's you're right. It's Manhattan um, who then goes inside, sees Dan and Laurie sleeping together naked, smiles benevolently, and then walks off over the water because the god metaphors had as yet not been enough. <laughs> they fell. <laughs> But, um then walks up and over the walls and um goes and sees goes and sees Vite in his meditation place and mm. and they have a conversation which I think is is absolutely fantastic because vite you 're absolutely right, is really trying to make peace with himself, and he seems to want a chance to ask God whether he did the right thing in the end mm. and this could be this could be all sorts of big, this could be you know pages and pages of dialogue and heavy stuff. But it's not what it is in the end is is all all dr Manhattan says is in the end, nothing ever ends Adrian and leaves and and I thought that was a more elegant statement of the kind of like viewpoint of this whole book than anything else you're likely to come across in it what What did you make of that as as the kind of philosophical cherry on the cake?
1: Yeah, that was good. I also like the um idea that he's gonna wander off now and create some life, yeah um to just push that again that god comparison a bit further the idea that manhattan could create a universe now with a lot of living things in it yeah 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 which yeah. um i mean it is a further extension of the kind of it's a massive leap from the power we thought he had to what he obviously assumes he he does have now
0: yes yeah i think you're absolutely right and i think that is really interesting like i kind of want a spin-off series of dr manhattan creating the world but i suspect that wouldn't be maybe maybe just go and read genesis <laughs> And then and then we're into we're into a kind of coda on the whole story, um, uh, but before we get to that, I, I want to say I want to I want to ask like, what would the what is the right thing to do here, if you're if you're Manhattan if you're Rorschach if you're Dryberg, is it right to go back to the world and tell them what happened, or is it better to not expose the lie and preserve the peace? What do you think? Hmm.
1: Um, well. I suppose it's a it's a temporary solution. This isn't it, because you'd imagine that slowly, um, over the over a period of decades rather than centuries, um, people will start to this this horror will slowly fade, as there's no other evidence of alien existence or attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'll slowly get back to fighting each other again. I don't think it's sort of fixed the world forever, like it's trying to be portrayed. Yeah. But on the other hand, you speed that collapse up if you go back and tell everybody about it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, or maybe or maybe either way, this is the sort of wake-up call that the world has needed, and there, there won't be any going back to, to what happened before, regardless of what the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's impossible. It's a it's impossible to say because for doing this act in the first place, it was impossible to really know that geopolitics would turn out that way. If you yeah. if you teleport a massive alien into a city, that automatically means everybody comes together to fight this new threat. Yeah, and then stays together after this new threat does nothing else. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I mean, uh, well, actually, a a comparison that's only just occurred to me, you know, is is a a real world act of great violence committed in New York. And the fact that September the 11th led not to peace, but to war, Mm. you know, and I actually think there's something almost prescient in the writing here where, you know, we see what we see, what great violence does in the real world. And it never brings people back from the brink of war. It tips them over the brink into it. Um, I'd never thought of that before and I, th- I think you're absolutely right like he hasn't solved human nature here and he hasn't solved the fact that nuclear weapons exist you know what needed to happen obviously it's easy to say this with, with um, 25 years of hindsight but what needed to happen was for one of the two interlocutors in the Cold War to cease to have the ability to maintain their position hmm. and that's what happened you know that's how the Cold War ended it wasn't some diabolical scheme it was the fact that the you know the bomb fell out of the russian economy and there was a coup and and the ussr fell apart and you know that's what ended it um and i think the fact that you know it was economics and 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 the desire for power which led to the collapse of the cold war is much more true to human nature than hmm. than relying on an alien invasion
2: yeah
1: yeah <laughs> could you imagine if uh, <laughs> the climax of the book was fight Trying to end the Cold War through the power of economics.
0: <laughs> <laughs> see, you don't understand. What I've done is I've short-sold all of these uh, stocks. <laughs> you wait, you see, it, in 25 years, the bottom's going to fall out of the Soviet economy. <laughs> that would be, that's, that's the evil genius I want to see. That one who plays by the real rules of the game, not with grand gestures, but with slow incremental taking over. <laughs> Actually it also raises the possibility Doesn't it that if this plan is going to work In order to maintain the illusion of a constant Outside alien threat Vite's going to have to carry on making alien creatures mm. <laughs> He's going to have to Carry on like just once every 20 years or so Just teleport one into the centre of a new city So everybody's like What do we do And keep them together I like the idea of this becoming like a cottage industry Like Vite being like The grand gesture has worked fuck i need to do another one shit um okay bring me another island full of artists who will keep (laughs) secrets and another psychic who i can bump off without anybody noticing and make me some new designs for an even more scary scary alien than the (laughs) big squid with an afro (laughs) (laughs) um uh, but he doesn't do that and instead the book ends um and I think we've just demonstrated that they should hire us for uh for writing the sequel but um but before it ends we have this little uh this little coda, this little kind of epilogue where um Dan and Laurie, um, now with new names, go and visit Sally. And um this kind of ties up the loose end about the fact that Laurie knows that the comedian was her father, but Sally doesn't know that Laurie knows. Mm. Um and, um, and that could have been quite a nice kind of emotional little thread, a nice moment but for the fact that the, the creepiest mother-in-law to son-in-law interaction in the history of popular <laughs> culture <I guess. laughs> when, um, when Dryberg looks down and notices this porn comic that Sally's got lying around of herself from when she was a big media phenomenon in the 50s and, um, and she's really embarrassed and he says oh no, don't worry, don't worry I used to own one of these what what the fuck and then and then going on to surpass this is the face as if she's kind of said well i see your your creepy ownership of a porn comic featuring me as a character as a younger woman and i raise you here's a free copy to replace the one you've lost
1: (laughs) (laughs) to use at home
0: like what the hell
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I suppose it it, it, it does make total sense because this guy was so into costumed adventurers that (laughs) he emulated and became one. And and ended
0: up marrying one, indeed. But that's some fucked up... I don't know what that is, what sort of Freudian complex that is, but that is a Freudian complex. It's a problem Mm. waiting to happen. And although it has to be said that I only noticed that on this read-through and all the other times that I've read it, I have stayed with the kind of more um, kind of moving... Thread in this particular scene, which is mm. uh, which is about you know Laurie telling Sally that she knows the comedian was her father, and and it ends on this this shot which we've um, which we've spoken about since the start of the book because it is really quite shocking and quite hard to process. Where you know Sally, after they leave, Sally crying goes into her room, picks up the picture of the of the Minutemen, and kisses the face of the comedian, and sits there weeping. Mm. And yeah. Do you think this is a realistic moment of character which is really moving and, and kind of portrays the complexity of human emotions and complicity and so on? Or is this just really dangerous storytelling that makes light of rape? What do you think?
1: Uh, well, we, we've touched on this before, haven't we? Um, It's really hard to know without the, without the experience to back it up. It's one of those things. You, yeah. And I think it's, as I said before, it's brave to explore it whether it's right or not whether it whether it is a an accurate depiction of what someone can feel after after being assaulted in that way yeah uh, i don't know we'd have to uh, you, yeah, you, that's true. it's hard to say for sure yeah Do, does it matter that um it was an attempt rather than a, an actual act <clears throat> um does that make a yeah. difference is the fact that he was stopped um and she didn't suffer the the whole um, act of being raped make a difference. I don't know, uh, I but think, it's it's, I think, it's impossible to say from from our point of view. I think
0: yes. I mean that's very very true. I mean I suppose I'm just kind of uneasy about it because there's a there's a lot of evidence you know that um, the 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 horror of rape and attempted rape is minimized in our culture, and so you know you could say that by constructing a kind of love story in the aftermath of an attempted rape between the rapist and the victim um is uh you know is irresponsible and kind of kind of implies kind of is an apology for for all rape and attempted rape but actually kind of i think maybe he's going in an even darker direction with it he's not saying that you know oh and they got together and they had a love story and and love equals happily ever after so it's so so that that act was nullified actually i think he's using it as a much more kind of psychologically complicated thing where he's saying no love does not equal happily ever after and happy ever after is not what this woman experienced and it's not what that man experienced either. You know, really? love was fucked up for them um, in a way which it would have been fucked up whether or not the attempted rape had occurred. And so, mm-hmm. so I think actually what it's inviting us into is a view of love, which is, which is incredibly bleak. Um, And all that you're left with at, at the end of it all is the fact that, you know, whatever the moral complicity was, these emotions happened and he wants to portray them. I still think you have to read quite a long way into it in order to arrive at that. And certainly the most the surface level interpretation of this is that it kind of justifies by using the form of a love story, it justifies or attempts to justify rape. Um but I can see the arguments on both sides and knowing Alan Moore's politics in a more general sense, I know that's not what he would want us to walk away from the comic book with. But I still think it's I still think it's very problematic, and I'm not certain that that storyline added to the to the theme of the book in a way. Like for me, it kind of became at certain points kind of became a bit of a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, and 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 we we end we end the entire book um, in the offices of the new frontiersman, where uh, Rorschach's um, diary is on top of what they call the crank pile, uh, which might actually be burned. Or might be used as the basis of the next publication so maybe the world will find out anyway what Adrian Veidt did Mm. Um, and then it's midnight and the final song is
1: After Midnight
0: (laughs) Brilliant, excellent, that's exactly the place we leave it with funk
2: Um,
0: so it's the end of the thing Um, what did you make of it?
1: Thoroughly enjoyed it Thoroughly enjoyed it and it was it's completely different, because I don't read graphic novels normally it's completely different to anything I've ever read before, quite obviously hmm. but um, yeah really, really good and dark and brooding and leaves you walking away thinking, ooh
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it, isn't it? That's the single
0: kind of, you had one noise to sum up the entire <laughs> book. It would be Ooh
2: Ooh <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, take me back to the Beano. <laughs> Surely that can't be what you say at the end of reading the
0: Citizen Kane of comic books, right? That was great, but I'm going to go back and read the Bash Street Kids. That's more my sort of pace.
1: Give me something light. Give me something. Roger the Dodger. Billy Wiz. Give me some Billy Wiz. Billy Wiz. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. I th- thoroughly, it was a very, very good, uh, very, very good book. So that is it for Watchmen. Uh, the only thing we've got left, just round up, we we'll do a bit of feedback and uh, a few reviews of it. I love this. I love it. We stopped doing this
0: for a while, didn't we, with Game of Thrones? Because all the reviews are kind of basically, yeah, this is great. Yeah. But I do love finding out like what from across the internet people thought, how many people thought it really sucked and how many thought it was great.
1: Yeah, so this is a combination of stuff that's been sent into us and... Uh, We've also scoured a bit of Goodreads. If you've ever seen Goodreads dot com, that's a good place to go to them to have a look at various reviews, mm-hmm. and a couple of other uh, couple of other sites we've looked at. But uh, yeah, so let's start off with a with a bit of feedback from uh, Max. Hello, Max. And uh, he says, "Do you notice how many themes from the books uh, from the book? Hang on a minute. Yeah, he says, Do you notice how many themes from from Watchmen that Disney and Pixar borrow.'" Uh, you can abstract the plot. <laughs> seriously you can abstract seriously that's yeah. amazing so you can apparently I haven't seen this these films but you can abstract the plot points from The Incredibles and set them next to Watchmen have you seen The Incredibles yeah yeah uh, and see if you can tell them apart what, does, does that work <laughs> um, let me think um, okay so you
0: well Watchmen doesn't really surround a family or if it does it's a very dysfunctional family yeah but you've got but you've got people in oh, I see why you so you've got you've got former superheroes in hiding because their public image kind of deteriorated. Yeah, that sounds and, about right. And and so and so that's your starting point. And um I I'm struggling to see a Rorschach parallel in, in the <laughs> Incredible <laughs> <laughs> um, but what what does Max say? I'm intrigued by this. I reckon this could fly.
1: Well, he he, he kind of leaves it there for us to to, do, to sort of oh man discuss. Woo! He just sort of throws um, that one in there for
0: you. <laughs> um, uh, Superheroes, supervillains. villains. Oh, they, they do the same riff on capes and how they're just basically the stupidest
1: thing that you can wear <laughs> yeah. as a superhero. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, do- dollar bill can testify to that. Yeah, dollar bill, you
2: <laughs>
0: you notice by the way that that's like he could he could these days he could have a rap career simply by being twice 50 cent yeah it should be like twice the money twice <laughs> the money if if he survived
1: <laughs> he could have he could have been like done a 50 cent thing it's like a, been shot a few times still alive and all that you know obviously <laughs> this is why <laughs> I'm not a rapper um, yeah. there's, there's another uh, film that uh, that Max has got a comparison for now, he does expand on this, but if you haven't seen it, I suppose I should say spoiler alert first, because it's going to give you a bit of plot. Um, but he says, uh, have you seen Frozen? It's a new Disney one. Do you know what?
0: I haven't, actually. But I have to say, I haven't really watched Disney movies for the plot. Okay. Or indeed, at all. So so yeah. hit me up.
1: I'll take this on trust, then. But it's... Um, all right. Frozen has the only super... As I just said, spoiler alert. If you don't know what happens in Frozen, skip a, skip forward about 30 seconds. Uh, Frozen has the only superpowered character in the world worried that her powers are going to hurt people. She moves to the wilderness, builds a crystal palace, and then she's brought back by the only emotional connection she's still got of her former life. I and mean, that's a pretty good comparison well, to Manhattan, isn't it? Well, fucking hell.
0: I wonder, I do wonder if the people who wrote Frozen had ever read Watchmen. Because it's the sort of thing that, like, if you're a writer, you probably read, but. You wouldn't think of it. It's not one of the things you'd go to if you were like, "All right, what influences shall I work into my Disney animated children's movie with songs?" Yeah. Watchmen, definitely Watchmen. I think we'll do that. But it is interesting how these sort of plots get under people's skin. Um, yeah, I want I want to hear more about um, Max. Uh, email us in again. Let us know what the what the Incredibles parallels are because hmm. I'm I'm seeing the start of it. But I want to I I sense this could be interesting. But I'm not seeing it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the Fro- that, that that is the the Crystal Palace. Particularly, is uh, I think is quite good with that. Yeah, it's so that is, similar, I mean, it?
0: and the going away emotional connection coming back, the whole thing. Although, although not having seen it, I can't testify that this is the case. But I, I really do hope that there isn't a decreasing amount of clothing on said superhero hmm. in Frozen, in the same way as there is in Watchmen, because that would be a little bit. That would be a bit much, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah you know, I would agree.
0: Where, where Dr. Manhattan goes from Mankini to Briefs to Thong to Big Blue Swinging Dick. <laughs> I, I just, I, for the kids, really, for the kids, I hope it doesn't go that way in Frozen as
1: well. <laughs> uh, okay, a more general point. He uh, says the, uh, the book was intended to be a commentary and critique of everything typical about mainstream superhero comics. So, mm. all the characters are intentionally one dimensional rip offs of recognisable heroes on the surface. And then they take those ideas Uh, to the next level in interesting ways. I think we've touched on this before, but um, Mm. it it is quite, especially when we've sort of poked fun at one or two of the obvious aspects of the characters at first. It's quite interesting that if you take a step back, if if you know about the, uh, if you're really into your, your sort of graphic novels and that, you'll know that this is intentionally done
0: yeah yeah very much and i think you know there are there are parallels which is very easy to draw you've got the guy who becomes a superhero because of a nuclear accident um and you've got the kind of bruce wayne parallel in um in dan dryberg Hmm. um although the bruce wayne thing is kind of split in half because you've got dryberg who inherits this money and has all of this like really pimp shit and but then you've also got ozymandias who is also Basically, able to be a super superhero or a clashing adventurer because of his kind of wealth and privileged position in society. Mm. Um, so I feel like that one's kind of split in half, and I I'm struggling to think of a good guy who's as sociopathic as Rorschach. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm thinking of uh, if you've never read this, actually, it's worth reading. Transmetropolitan, yeah, is is a really, really, really great comic book about a kind of kind of like a Hunter S. Thompson type character, this like gonzo journalist called Spider Jerusalem. Yeah. And he has the same kind of bleak, um, uh, kind of existentialist cynicism about the world. Um, but so interestingly then, I suppose he's kind of halfway between the comedian and, uh, and Rorschach. But Rorschach, certainly for an uh, protagonist, I can't think of any any like protagonist characters in other comic books mm. who are as fucking mental as Rorschach. Yeah. Anybody Rorschach in any other comic book is the Joker, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? That's that's kind of who he is. Yeah,
1: but, yeah. yeah. fair point. Um, one last point from Max is, um, this is an interesting one. See what you think of this. So, mm. the character of Sally, Sally Jupiter, um, or yeah. Silk Spectre 2, if you like, yeah. Um, yeah. is in many ways the archetype of what's come to be known as the fake geek girl. He says... <laughs> He's a, he's a someone who dresses up in parades in front of people below her attractiveness in order to exploit their attention. So basically, someone who's way out of hangs out with people who are way out of the league, um, just to sort of I don't know to feel good. Do you, do you think yeah, that's so? She
0: gets all of the adulation. Yeah,
1: do you think that's do you think that's Sally?
0: <laughs> um. Now that's interesting. that's a kind of cultural phenomenon with which I am not familiar. Um, I, and it may be, it may be a US thing, uh, but I don't know, like she, I mean, she's definitely not shy about, um, hanging out with these dudes who are a bit weird, but I think she's as weird herself.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, I think it's, so, I think it's
1: all wrapped up in, um, her uh, relationship with her mum and dad as well.
0: Well, yeah, there's no denying that. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I buy it actually, um, uh, to a certain extent. But I, I think, I think maybe the lesson there is that even these very, very attractive girls can be as screwed up as the, the kind of Mary Jane characters for the the mm. kids who, you know, who who were the kind of geeks in school. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the lesson there is you can be pretty and fucked up all at the same time.
1: Yeah. Who'd have thought? (laughs) More (laughs) life-affirming
0: messages from Watchmen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Max is just fine. Max has also got a a recommendation. If you liked Watchmen, yeah, he um, he suggests looking into uh, a comic called Black Sad, which is um, it's basically uh, sort of a a film noir-style 1950s American cop story. Fucking yes. But uh, wait for the twist. But they're all. All the characters are animals, um, and each each type (laughs) of character are type uh, types of animals. So, you know, like um, all the police are types of dogs, and all the like underworld guys are are reptiles or amphibians. Um, It sounds awesome. I've never read it, but it does sound really cool. What's it called?
0: Black Sad.
1: Black Sad. Yeah, B L A C K S A D. So, um, if you if you enjoyed Watchmen and you want a bit more, that might be a good place to. A good place to try. Good shout. Good shout. I read that. Yeah. So we move on to some reviews.
0: Let's 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 hear the best the internet has to offer.
1: Right. Shall we start with a five starer? Oh,
0: let's start. Let's start nice. Let's start. Yeah. You know.
1: So I've, I've, basi- positive. I've basically looked for predominantly five and one-star reviews because I'm only really interested in polemic. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say that. Nobody's going
0: to write a really, really forthright average review. Yeah. I have to say, I was totally consumed with the fact that this was perfectly adequate. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: It's
1: not going to happen, is it? So Bryce gave it five stars. He said, I'm rereading Watchmen for the first time in about five years and I've thus mm. decided to start a petition to officially change its name to Creamy Goodness. Every 20 pages or so, I come across a sequence and go, yeah, I remember, this is the part that kicks ass, this is my favourite part of the book. Then, 20 pages later, I repeat the phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Creamy Goodness? That's... That's awesome, I am disturbed as to why the first word
0: association for him with that experience is creamy goodness <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's a bit questionable, I think, like very, very good, or this is surprisingly enjoyable, or "Oh wow, this is just full of hits <laughs> creamy goodness so, sort of there's a bit of fire rubbing going on there, isn't there? I'm not certain I'm comfortable with that, but. yeah.
1: <laughs> I like that idea of you come across a bit and think, oh, yeah, I really like this bit. This is my favourite bit. And then a few pages later, think, actually, no, this is my favourite bit.
0: (laughs) I have to say that reading it through for this one, that happened for me again. This is like some tenth time I've read it through or whatever. But I had had the same experience. I just, yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: Yeah, creamy goodness. There it is. I I felt the creamy goodness of Watchmen as well.
2: (laughs) Mm.
1: (laughs) Uh, Rainbow gave it five stars. Um, She said... I was torn about how many stars to give this. On one hand, it's a breathtaking, fascinating accomplishment. On the other, I find it really grim and depressing. Mm-hmm. I went with five stars because technically five stars means it was amazing. And it was that. But I don't think I'll reread it for at least another 15 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I sympathise with that, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, no well not necessarily with this because i uh, i mean the the particularly the philosophy and the characterization and so on are so interesting that I keep wanting to come back to it yeah but um there are other things that I've seen, like you know pieces of creative art which I've encountered and I've gone that was fucking immense, I'm never watching that again
1: yeah yeah i I feel similar about um really like uh important but yeah bleak films or like um you know something like the pianist or schindler's list which is which are fantastic films and they're very moving but i also Mm. after watching them i think that was that was brilliant i'm really glad i've seen it but i can't think of another time where i'll be sitting down with a glass of wine in an evening and think right i fancy watching schindler's list now do you know what i mean because it's because it's it's not the kind of film that you you want to if you fancy a i don't know it's not the kind of thing you sit down and think right i want to be entertained now i'll put this on it's more it's yeah. almost like a documentary isn't it um and it's to l- yeah. learn something more about that period and once you've learned it i don't know if you need to do it again I th- i'll probably will go back to it but like this yeah. person says about watching, probably not for like 15 years or so
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I th- I mean, I think actually that's an interesting thing about the the difference between, you know, most art gets made because it's entertaining and people pay to be entertained. Mm-hmm. But there is also the stuff that genuinely moves us and which we kind of might describe as important, kind of is, it, we don't watch it because it's entertaining. We watch it because it, it kind of, I mean, it enhances our humanity in a sense. You know, mm-hmm. like it, you know, you're a, I believe you're a better person for having confronted the kind of, the kind of darkness that Schindler's List talks about, hmm. um, and I think you're probably, you know, better informed and better able to deal with the world having Red Watchmen as well, hmm. um, and I think that's that's the that's the hallmark of great art, hmm. um, but that does mean that it doesn't necessarily have to be entertaining or easy to do.
1: Yeah, uh, Ma- is it, it Mark or Adam? Sorry, um, I beg your pardon. Uh, Adam says. This is the first time I read all the text sections that follow the first eleven issues. Honestly, the they were. First time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I um, won't bother reading half of those chapters. <laughs> fuck it. It's
0: not, there's no pictures.
1: Well, he says actually. Honestly, they weren't as illu- This, by the way, this is a five star review. Honestly, they weren't as illuminating as I thought they'd be. I think it's possible to skip all of them and come away with a perfectly good understanding of Watchmen from the comic book sections alone, which I think is. It's probably true that you do, um, you know, you get a bit of extra detail. That's almost like the bonus features on a DVD, isn't it? You get extra detail, but you don't need it for the plot, really.
2: I
0: think they're more important than that. I mean, this read-through has definitely shown me how those bits, certain of those bits, are just, like, pointless. Mm. Um, But... Actually, I think they're more important than bonus features or deleted scenes, just as curiosities, you know, because they're part of the narrative. Mm. And it depends. I mean, if you want to, if you just want to get the plot, then yeah, just read the comic book bits and you'll get the plot. But that's like saying, I don't watch films. I just read the Wikipedia article. Mm. You know, like, it's all been put together for a reason in order to tell you more about the world. And even if I think some bits of it don't work as well as Alan Moore might have wanted them to, I'm still going to say that as the authors, he and Dave Gibbons kind of, Wanted them included, so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. I'm gonna take them seriously like that. Can't believe you. I mean, read them at least, scan them at least. Even if you come away <laughs> saying they're a bit shit, fucking like engage with them a
1: bit. Well, here's one one aspect of of Adam's review that I think you will agree with. He, he goes on to say, I especially didn't like Dan Dryberg's article on owls. Well, all right, fair
0: enough. Yeah, I, that, that had the very, very strong feeling of something that was like, fuck, six hours to the deadline for submitting it. What's, he's into owls. Fuck it. I heard the owls swoop down from behind me screeching loudly and I felt damp in the pants. Like you know yeah I don't think I don't think that section worked at all but I still I'm glad I read it because that it did tell me something about his character even if it wasn't terribly entertaining
1: well I also thought that that worked because I mean I I thought it was quite boring but um I I found Dan quite as a as a personally quite boring and I think (laughs) and I think if you I think these little bits at the end of each chapter are kind of what what it'd be like to sit down and have a beer with each of these people? So it'd be really interesting to hear about <laughs> Hollis's tales of the past. Yeah, um, suspect one's quite intriguing, you know. Uh, the Adrian yeah. Veet thing is quite interesting, just for his massive ego and his octopus. No, no, he's on fucking smug. Fucking yeah. smug is what yeah. it is. The, the, the case notes for Roshark are very much almost <laughs> like you're sitting with the doctor looking at all these. But And then Dan's kind yeah. of like, right, what should we talk about? Oh, I'm really into owls. owls. And then, like, an hour later, you're just thinking, oh, when can I leave? Which is <laughs> 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 <She's> really boring. <laughs> Re- owls, really fascinating. <laughs> Do tell me more. <laughs> oh, <Or> Dan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, fair enough, fair uh, enough. Uh,
1: Adam finishes by saying uh, it's still a great story told in comic book form every time I read it I marvel at how well everything fits together and how much the story moves me which mm. is good yeah I can't and argue with that so just want another five star from Russell this novel is a beautiful gritty incredibly artistic and will change your perspective on many aspects of life the drawings are pretty cool too
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough actually like I, I, I suspect me and him have a similar approach where like I I I love words and I'm not as adept with art. I love art but I just don't I visual art I don't engage with in the same way. Yeah. So there is a bit of me like I was saying the other day like I have to work hard to engage with the pictures but the words just flow right in. Hmm. So I would probably write. It, yeah, 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 great oh the language. Oi, ha, oh, fantastic. Yeah, quite pretty as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you ready for some one-starers?
0: I was born ready. I fucking right.
1: love these. Because so, some people have given this a bit of a kick in. Not many. Uh, the majority are, I'd say the majority are split between sort of five and three or two. But the vast right. the vast majority is five. And then you've got sort of a bump at three and two, and then a few one stars. And then a few
0: angry, angry uh, haters. Yeah, four. one of
1: whom is Mike, who says, I find the popularity and praise for this sad. The fascist ideal of the end justifies the means seems to be what the writers expect to be the norm for humans, or even the best that can be expected. You like this? Fine, keep it.
0: (laughs) Drops, Mike.
1: This isn't it, yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, there's no denying actually that that, he has a, that Alan Moore has an extremely bleak worldview on display here and that everybody basically resolve, revolves around the idea that might is right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think he likes that. I think he just thinks that's the way the world works. So I don't know. I mean, to what extent can you really review the morality of somebody's worldview? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's legit to talk about it, but I'm not certain I would write off the entire book on the basis of it says something that I don't like to hear, mm. you know. You've got to kind of, you've got to kind of entertain worldviews from beyond your own, if only for the light they shed on the things you haven't thought of. Yeah, but I don't know.
1: Do you think it's trying to be realistic?
0: Um, I think it's trying to be philosophically realistic and psychologically realistic, but like not not narratively realistic. You know, <laughs> big blue swinging dick and you know. Richard Nixon was president for four terms,
1: um, yeah, and so so on. But I mean, in terms of yeah, so philosophically realistic, in terms of giving a realistic portrayal of sort of the human condition and what people are like, um, because if it if it is, Mm. I suppose I I agree somewhat with that review because it isn't. It is quite a warped view of the world, Um, and Mm -hmm. I think it, it sort of it it works for me if I think it's taken a world and sort of twisted it to an extreme and sort of playing around with what you get if you do that but um i do Mm. think sort of some of the assumptions about human condition are a bit sort of are a bit off if you try and say that you know this is what the world's really like and given the chance this is what things would become
0: yeah i mean i there are yeah definitely there are two responses to that i think the first one is to say i i think i would have found it much easier to believe that as a worldview if i was if i was kind of Reading it in 1985 when it was published, yeah, yeah, um, like you know, I think the the tension and the fear of the Cold War is something that is extremely easy for us to forget. This is this is 50 years of believing that you could probably die tomorrow, mm. um, and and so and that's going to have a certain effect on the way you view the world. Um, the other thing is though that I, I I I'm minded to agree with you to a certain extent that there isn't there's no convincing counter argument in the book. To the idea that you know people are basically venal mm. and you know and you know we you know we bear children hellbound as ourselves as rorschach says right um and the only counter argument to that is that is probably the only poorly sketched characters in the entire thing which is doctor and mrs long you know and they're they're you're kind of they're you're sort of well or you could just be sort of nice and and you know nice and just get along mm. um and they're purposefully presented as ostriches or people whose whose goodwill ultimately does no good whatsoever. Mm. Um and and yeah so I think I think if it's trying to be a, a you know a, a philosophical overview it fails massively but I think it's a very powerful argument for its particular viewpoint even if in the end I think that viewpoint is incomplete.
1: Okay. Uh Nick says uh one star. This book was recommended to me as the graphic novel to read. I suppose this means I don't enjoy graphic novels. Well I, think <laughs> well, I think Rorschach is one of the best heroes I've read, the other characters are mostly awful people doing awful things in an awful world. Also, the side story, the boy reading, the pirate comic, was deplorable and disgusting.
0: <laughs> Which is the fucking point? <laughs> Of course it's <laughs> deplorable and disgusting. It's supposed to mirror the descent of the world into nuclear holocaust. There's no way of sugarcoating that. <laughs> Fuck! Honestly. It's not, also not, not also, a fan of
1: the uh, man sailing home on a raft full of corpses. Nah,
0: I, I was not either, I have to say. I thought, particularly this time through, it revealed its weaknesses. But still, again, it's trying to be awful. So, of course, that's what it is. Plus by the way, how do you get around describing other people as awful people doing awful things in an awful world, but hold Rorschach up as an example of somebody who's not doing that? (laughs) I thought you'd
1: take issue
2: with that. (laughs) I I
0: very much beg to differ. Rorschach's the fucking poster boy for angry kind of existentialist rage. Oh man, I just, I mean, you know, the part two of that sentence has a kind of an argument. Part one, where Rorschach is supposed to be a moral paragon, what book were you reading? (laughs) Stay away from my house.
1: (laughs) Okay, Uh, a couple of two star reviews actually for you, just to round off. Um, Elizabeth. Now, I'll kill you with this one because I think, I think this may be an example of where Watchmen has ended a relationship because ooh, ooh. Elizabeth says I read this because it's my boyfriend's favourite but it's very misogynistic and it made me very very angry that's it. Ooh, I get, I get the feeling. I get the feeling that's pretty much the notes she left on uh, the, the kitchen table. If she left. You could
0: almost hear her, like getting to the end of that sentence with like pages left to right, and then being like, "Do you know what? I'm just gonna fucking say it to him. <laughs> I'm just gonna just getting up and blasting him." Um, well, I mean, we've 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 been over this a lot, haven't we? And I think yeah. it's definitely uh, undeniable that it's very very questionable. Regardless of Alan Moore's broader politics, mm. this is—I um, think it tries, but ultimately it wants to be a comic book satire as well as everything else. You know, with these particular cliched stock characters and the rest, yeah. and that means that ultimately you are going to have female characters who kick and punch people, but don't make much of a difference. Mm. Um, so yeah, I—it's—it's like it's she's got a very good point there.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of um, she comes in with the book at the end, (laughs) puts it there on the table, and uh, her boyfriend's like, So, did you like it? I'm leaving you. (laughs) 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 Pack your bags. (laughs) (laughs) What the?
0: What? I honestly thought you'd like the particular nihilist worldview of the. You know why this is happening. (laughs) And the particular bright colours of the. I'll get my coat.
1: Uh, okay, Mark. Mark's quite good. Mark says, two stars. Didn't, he's, didn't really get it. Sure, the dystopian world was interesting, but I didn't understand how some of these guys got the powers. I was also bothered by Dr. Manhattan's blue dong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In that case, Mark, I think your problem may not be with the comic
1: book. <laughs> I love how the dong makes it into the review. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: In fairness, we have found ourselves quite fixated by that ourselves. <laughs> um, it was, well, uh, none of them had powers. One of them had powers and it was extremely clear how he got them. Mm. The rest were just, you know, people operating at a peak of physical fitness and human condition. Yeah. Or, powered by an endless, bottomless rage at the heartless universe. Or both.
1: Or bottomless pit of money in Dan's, <laughs> well, in Dan's case. Yeah,
0: well, that too. eh? Mm. So, no, I've I don't really understand that. It's quite clear where they all get their powers from.
1: It is but, quite convenient that they're all fantastic at martial arts. They've all like had an aptitude for it.
0: Well, yeah, but of course they are. They're superheroes. Like If they weren't good at that stuff, they would have been killed already. Hmm. So if they're still alive at the end of the period of uh, costumed <laughs> adventurers, then that's sort of by default, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, fair point. Uh, so... Yeah, that's pretty much all there is. I've just got one more uh, five-star review to end it with. Um, all right. Yeah, but- let's let's leave on a high note. Okay. Um, have you got anything else to say before we go about this book?
0: Um, no, just that I'm very glad that we've done it. I think it's been a really interesting thing to get into a graphic novel between the two of us, hmm. um, and uh, and I've enjoyed I've enjoyed hearing the feedback, and I've enjoyed. Um, kind of going through the book piece by piece. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I think mean, it's a masterpiece. I really do, even though this time actually reading it this closely has opened up some flaws which I didn't know before.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you like this, get ready for the next book we're going to review. It's a bit of a departure. Strap yourselves in because, <laughs> um, you know, you're thinking, well, they done, they did Game of Thrones. They've done Watchmen. What's the, what, what could they possibly follow it up with? Probably something touching on the same... No, no, no. We are going to go to do something completely different. And uh, by by popular demand, or should I say by overwhelming popular demand, <laughs> we're, we're going to have to... Uh, obviously, we really want to, but we're going to have to... Um, <laughs> Do Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Yes! <laughs> so this will be a, a three or maybe four part, we'll see how we go, a three or yeah. maybe four part series um, looking at uh, that classic, uh, Jane Absolutely. Austen.
0: Absolutely. Well, we, we clearly do not give a single solitary shit about building a consistent brand. movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just from, from Watchmen to Pride and Prejudice. Um, I have to say, though, having been a Pride and Prejudice hater for most of my life, but completely on the basis of the fact that the TV, I thought the TV series was shit, um, and 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 therefore never having read the book, I actually went and read the book, and I realised that all of these people who treat it like a romance are full of shit, and actually it's a really funny, really funny, incredibly well written satire. So, um, so I, I I'm reading it for the laughs, and that's why I'm still a man. There you go, good stuff. And uh, if you if you if
1: you think if you're hearing this and thinking oh. That sounds awful. Don't worry. After a few, a few uh, episodes of that, we will get back to something which is a bit more similar to what we've been doing before. Uh, but we thought it would be interesting just to take, have a bit, of, do a change of pace, and try something different. Anyway, mm-hmm. back to Watchmen. If you, if you've got any other thoughts on Watchmen um, or ahead of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, send send those in to us uh, we are sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com that's shark liver oil Podcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at sharkliveroil so the final review of Watchmen to end it we've gone with Travis five stars he says it is mandatory that you read it several times hey, ma-
0: mandatory?
1: sorry to, yeah, as if you again.
0: only ever do it on mandate <laughs>
1: Okay, let me start. Mandatory again. perhaps. Yeah, I know mandatory. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is man, I like mandatory.
0: All right. Oh, okay, that's now, that's the now the shark liver oil pronunciation, that's the shark liver oil pronunciation, of, pronunciation word. of it. Oh, uh <laughs> good. Pro- pronunciation of that word
1: I'm you. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it is mandatory. That you read it several times. As ever, see, it's ruined it for me. Let me start this again. Let me start this again. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> the, our final review is, uh, is Travis. He gave it five stars. And he says, It is mandatory that you read it several times, as every time you will see something new. Which we've kind of, we've kind of found out, haven't we? Um, yeah. Alan Moore's Watchmen pushes the boundaries of what a comic book could do almost to breaking point and then ushered in the era of grim and gritty comics while at the same time reminding us of the sense of wonder that makes comics so cool. Bosh. There you have it. That's what it
0: is. I agree with that completely.
1: Good stuff. Well, on on that note, till next time.
0: Till next time. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. You're Dave.
1: Bye. (laughs) And goodbye. (laughs) Just just let it go, man. Let it go. (laughs)